Hello and welcome back to the Not So Fit Couple podcast with your hosts, Lucy Davis. And Benjamin Halden. So today we are back with our very first guest of Series 4, which we are super excited about. This is so exciting. The best new setup. Indeed. We have physiologist and lifestyle medicine specialist among numerous other accolades that he's going to introduce himself, Mr. Oliver Patrick. In today's episode, we go over so many different topics that are, I guess you could say, a little bit controversial in the fitness space, things that people don't really talk about. And the way Oliver talks about these topics is absolutely fantastic. We go into talking about things such as the weight loss jab, talking about obesity, talking about... Sarcopenia. Sarcopenia. And it is an overall very, very interesting and insightful episode. I think you'll take a lot away from this episode, but also what you'll take a lot away from is that we also now have the MyCutical app, which you can take a trial on. Or Yes, that's exciting. And also we have a code set up for the listeners of the podcast only, which is not so fit. That coupon will give you seven days free trial when that you lose or use the link that is in the YouTube description or on Spotify or Apple Podcast descriptions. Enjoy today's episode, guys. We met at one of the events that was a build-up to Performex, which is in two months' time. Yeah, yeah, 18th, 19th 18th, 19th March. Yeah, yeah, I'm very looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm so excited. They've got such a wonderful collection of people Mm -hmm. because a lot of the events we've been to before in the fitness industry, you get a complete... It's just a quite a big mix sometimes, isn't it? In terms of you don't really know what's factual and what's not. But I think, I think it's a bit of a circus done, usually, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, in the nicest way possible. But the way they've done Perform X is, I think the lineup is, is It's a very incredible. different type of event though, isn't it? To your body powers and Arnold's and stuff like that. Mm. It feels different. I mean, I, I was fortunate to be on the, the sort of advisory panel and, and sat with Steve Orton, who you probably <clears throat> both know. And, and it was genuinely, what are the topics that aren't being discussed enough? You know, what, what are we going to do that, that makes this stand out? But not as a marketing thing. What's going to give people information they haven't had before, voices they haven't been exposed to before, yet also recognize there's certain things the fitness profession wants. It wants to hear from the big boys and, mm-hmm. and girls in the industry. But I think there's there's a latitude of, of voices, which is quite exciting, yeah. uh, of which I'll be one and, and you two will be Indeed. one. I know. So it's going to be exciting. You're on day, which day are you on? We are, on, we are speaking on Saturday. Yeah, we're yeah. Saturday. Are you... I'm Friday. I've got. I've got. But are you there Saturday? I don't know. I wasn't. Oh. I wasn't. I wasn't going to be. I was meant to be away. <laughs> well, maybe you, you have you're to be now. Up in the Maldives. <laughs> yeah, I was meant to be in the Maldives, and that's been cancelled. Oh really? Yeah. No yeah. So, um, which again, for those not seeing how pale I am, is no bad thing. <laughs> you know, I don't think they're ready for me in the Maldives. You know, they'll they'll immediately sort of cover me in foam on arrival and, and put me in a top bedroom. You know, I, on my honeymoon actually, I went to I went to Cuba and I was feeling very pleased with myself. As I walked out of the hotel in my sort of new honeymoon garb, this woman ran up to me and screamed, you have the skin of an uncooked chicken. <laughs> I was like, I'm with my new wife. I'm trying to woo this woman. You know, this is the beginning of our lives together. She meant nothing but, you know, get out of the sun. Yeah. <laughs> like, in the politest way possible. In the politest yeah, way possible. Came across like yeah, not polite. But, but that skin of an uncooked chicken sits with me. But on the Saturday, I now should be able to come and I'll be front row for your talk great stuff what we'll do is we'll leave the link in the youtube and podcast descriptions to before max if anyone wants to come along yeah, a couple of my clients come actually a few members so one of the i think the draws when we listened to your chat at that performance event was just your honesty and openness and and speaking slightly different to some of the other fitness professionals out there i think it was a draw to yourself but there's another draw as well in the fact that you sound exactly like jarvis 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 of iron man 
Really? Yes. Cal, can we put a clip of this in the do podcast? You, do you know who that is? Yeah. Because I do. He has got one of the, the most lovely, satisfying voices you have ever heard in this, my life. You have a wonderful voice. Yes. This is a turning point in my yes. life. This is a compliment. Yeah. You this is a compliment, it, by I'm the way. Not, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Are you about Jarvis. to play Jarvis clip? He's, Cal's going to play it over the, over the podcast now, so viewers will be able to listen. If you've not heard of Jarvis before, we're going to play the clip, but he's basically Iron Man's sidekick, isn't he? Assistant, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I've never had that before. I get, right, I think when, on when your, uh, CV, I'm yeah, going to bang that. That's going to go top line. Like <laughs> <laughs> There's, I think when you're a sort of gingery pale person, people always compare you yeah. to other gingery pale people. I think you're blonde. Well, I do too, but that's the oh, superb so, lighting. I know. I would class short, short be blonde. The, the, the longer yes. it gets, the gingerer it gets, which is, which is a maybe, challenge. Maybe it's the light reflecting its. Blonde. It, it could like be. I'm, I'm having a good day. I think it's yeah. grey. <laughs> it's grey, grey and full training. So I'll get compared to anything from Paul Scholes to Paul Bettany occasionally, which I'll take. Um, to there was um, Luke Chadwick, the old <laughs> footballer for those back yeah. in the day. He's played for Everton, I think. Yeah, and yeah. Man United, I think yes. Academy. To uh, I get Damien Lewis. Yes. Um, which I'll, I'll take gladly. But I think there's a desire to, to sort yeah. of put blondie, <laughs> strawberry blonde people together. But I've never had a voice comparison, so yeah. this is this are. is revelatory. That, that's a pinnacle, then, mate. I think um, your your experience within the the fitness and wellness space is vast. So do you want to give people a bit of an overview of your background as well and the kind of things that you've done inside the wellbeing space? Yeah, it's it's sort of strange because I'm I'm back in fitness probably to a degree, having left it. So I I graduated as an exercise scientist, you know, and much like lots of people who do that at university, there's, there's nowhere to go really. You know, do I stay on an extra year and, and do a PGCE and become a PE teacher? Mm -hmm. Do I try and break into strength and conditioning? And and that, you know, this was 99, so that sort of tiny marketplace yeah. where clubs, even even sort of premiership football clubs, hadn't really embraced a separate need for that profession at that time. Mm -hmm. So there was there was this sort of strange sense of you do that degree because you thought it was interesting, then you'd go and and do something else, you know, retrain as an accountant or, you know, or possibly become a gym manager. So I weirdly ended up in the world of health assessments where mm. I was actually going off to work at the Olympics in Sydney as, a, as an event guide, which is, again, the greatest job no, I've ever had in my entire yeah. life, taking people to Olympic events and explaining what's going on. So I mean, do yeah, I did business management, leadership and events at oh, uni. Oh, nice. Yeah. You ended up at the Olympics doing all did guys, you? didn't you? Yeah, the 2012? Commie Games, and I did one in Australia, not Sydney, because yeah. I was younger. Um, but I did, big. yeah, I did sporting <laughs> events quite significantly. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's super interesting because I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. it amazing. What, what, what a machine up close. Yeah. You know, just, you know, actually being sort of behind the mechanics of it. And the thing about Sydney amongst the sport was the fact that its limiting factor was was its transport in mm. infrastructure. And basically they said if if people from Sydney stay off the roads, this will work. And everyone stayed off the roads for a month. And it was, it was it sort of built an incredible community and, and Sydney sort of was, was famously one of the best Olympics just for the vibe that was there. So I was there, but I, I didn't necessarily want a full-time job. So I took a job almost as an internship doing stress electrocardiograms in a health screening clinic. So stress electrocardiograms, you know, if you ever see someone being put through some testing, in fact, you know, 50 cent, I should say 50 cent, but I'm just yeah. not cool enough. <laughs> I uh, don't think I'm even cool enough to say that, so don't you so worry. Fiddy, I think in the famous video for Inda Club, yeah. also doesn't sound right from Jarvis' <laughs> voice, Inda Club, uh, is, you know, wearing a sort of stress ECG where you're monitoring the heart's response to an increasing workload. Mm -hmm. And my job was with very little sort of additional professional training to be at the end of a traditional health screen 
where they'd seen a nurse for some testing, a doctor for some testing. Then they saw me for a stress ECG and a fitness program. And what was staggering about that is I sort of ended up in, in this quite elite product with, with, with limited technical knowledge. Yet, I seemed to be the only person talking about the things that the clients were actually interested in. Mm -hmm. So this was sort of this fascinating sense of the doctor was checking for diseases the person didn't have and wasn't interested in and sort of ignoring at that time the questions they really had. So I was, I was the last hour of a three hour process and they're going, well, it's great that I'm well, and we need to define what the word well means. Yeah. It's great that I'm well, but um, you know, my, I can't run because of my knees. That's interesting. That sounds, have you had a diagnosis of that? No, I just know it. And mm -hmm. I've got back pain, so I can't lift weights. That's interesting. When I eat certain vegetables, I fart a lot. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and actually, you know, genuinely thanks for sharing because you know you probably need to talk to someone yeah. about that. I don't have much libido. Don't want to have sex with my wife, or I don't have sex with my husband, or both. Um, you know, and my skin's a bit strange, and, and there's no clear reason for that. I've got this stubborn weight, and I don't sleep very well. And suddenly, this whole range of things that hadn't been covered over a sort of two and a half hour window with with medical professionals yet were clearly of pressing interest to this individual. So you had a sort of average age 50 year old person who was being told they were well, but was at the end of this assessment quite clearly not functioning well. Mm -hmm. So what's the definition of being well? Is it the absence of disease or is it the presence of well-being? And again, <clears throat> I talk an awful lot about the personal definition of well versus ill, which, which would bore the living daylights out of you at the moment. But, but that was really interesting. And, and I had a brilliant sort of incoming medical director at that organization. And, and they said, well, why don't we try and capture with objective data, some of these subjective conversations, as yeah. in people are always talking about stress. How do we measure that? People are always talking about, you know, musculoskeletal dysfunction, injury risk, et cetera. How do we quantify that and determine who is likely to get injured and who isn't? And this concept of nourishment and diet, we're sort of using body weight and body fat as the only marker of nutritional quality. Yeah. So we're taking calories as a unifying marker of nutritional quality. But what about nourishment, my nutrient availability? What about my gut health? So how do we get a slightly more, again, objective marker of nutrition quality? So th this was sort of a very organic, small organization. I went to Sydney, came back, and, and we started to bring in technologies to test things that other people hadn't. And again, I was increasingly fascinated that this was sitting largely in my domain. And, and there was a brilliant doctor, brilliant doctors and brilliant nurses, but they didn't have a remit to take this on per se. And so over a period of time, I started to, to bring in these technologies and then be asked to retrofit how we could train other Ollies to, to use technology to measure subjective markers of health and how we can move a health screen, which is checking for disease you don't have with, with tests that probably don't find it anyway, to a health assessment where we can start to engage people, not just on whether they're ill or well, but do they have the tools to look after themselves? And, and long, long story short, that company moved into Nuffield. I wrote that into a more formal qualification called the Level 7 Diploma in Health and Wellbeing Physiology. Just zings off the tongue, that one. Um, <laughs> That's a tongue twister. A real tongue twister. And, and really was part of the, the team that sort of relaunched health screening through Nuffield as health assessments. And that, that professional gave Nuffield a platform to sell a much more aggressive health assessment culture into corporations. So Nuffield was very much a not sort of an old school yeah. orthopedic hospital group. It acquired the business that I was in and, and the team there sort of re-engineered health assessments to bring in measurements of stress, measurements of nutrition, measurements of back, created this new practitioner and then really pushed on into corporates. And then that confidence led to the acquisition of Canons, which was about 55 gyms and then the birth of, of Nuffield as a, 
as a commercial gym chain. So my, my skill, and, and then in, in those commercial gyms, I helped uh, write the training for the wellbeing advisor and create something called the health MOT, which is like a pre-gym assessment. Mm-hmm. So I spent my life working out, first and foremost, what doctors aren't talking about. Right? So I think there's a nervousness in fitness about that the doctors covers that area. And, and what was fascinating, certainly in those first four or five years of clinical practice, was working in a room with a doctor. So the clinic I was in, we worked together and seeing what their perspective was on well-being mm-hmm. and the key gray area that they weren't discussing. So I felt there was an opportunity for ownership there. That, that was point number one. Then how can I talk about these topics in a way that integrates with medicine but doesn't act as, a, as an alternative to? Mm. And, and that could be explained to a lot, lots of different things. And then really, you know, what, what is the opportunity of really engaging people on improving their well-being using biological data? So in those testing, we brought in heart rate variability, which is a tech we, we might talk about later, as a way of quantifying how likely someone is to get ill from stress. Mm-hmm. We brought in an antioxidant measurement that measured the level of certain vitamins in the, in the tissue layer of your skin to engage on, are you eating enough fruit and veg? Uh, brought in a 3D um, spinal mapping tool to look at your spine in, in the sagittal plane. So as you bend forwards, we, we run a device over your back to see whether your spinal movement was equitable through your through your vertebrae um, because mm. we felt disjointed movement would be a trigger for non-specific back pain that's always an interesting topic isn't it because we always get that oh it's, it's my squat that's causing me back pain it's it's like you know it's because you sit like a weapon on it for 12 hours a day so, and, and you know and again in yeah. so many of these cases you're, you're you're taking a measurement that you already know is going to be there right yeah. so if you've got someone who sits like a wet banana mm. you know which i think is a medical term <laughs> you know, so then you're going to see dysfunction because the, the way in which the spine works is, you know, it has these small muscles that control it and then it has larger muscles that move it. But there is an atrophy of muscles that stabilize and, and you know, the body just forgets how to move in harmony. So big muscles move before small muscles. Mm-hmm. And of course, the minute you go and play squash, having sat at a desk for 17 hours for 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're going to create a massive inflammatory process which will, which will turn into pain. So it's, it's going back to, lots of people are doing things wrong, but they haven't, being explained why that is wrong and how they move themselves out of it. And this is the longest intro ever, so chop it down. <laughs> no, it's, it's not, it's super it's interesting. interesting. And so obviously you work really closely with GPs. Yeah. Just from what you were saying there about like anatomy, your spine, have you ever worked closely with physiotherapists? Yeah, and, and enormously. Because they're better. In. And, and I think, you know, where, where I've wanted to be is, I think there's a, there's a real ownership over well-being in terms of what I've tried to, to create is a, is a is a professional framework both for me and for others where you're a specialist in movement because that's what we're that's in our dna you're a specialist in nutrition a specialist in um stress and recovery a specialist in environment a specialist in mindset until there's someone who's better than you so really there's always someone who's a better subspecialist right? yeah. and a bit like medicine you've got your gp mm-hmm. when it reaches a certain point on the hormone front you know you go to the endocrinologist. Yeah. You've got you know, your tummy control to a certain degree, then it's the gastroenterologist. But what you want with the GP is not passing the first person who walks into the office with a tummy complaint straight to gastro, because mm-hmm. it might be a really simple thing. Yeah. And same with the hormones. It might be a really simple thyroid thing. Not, not everything is that complicated. And I think you know, one, of the, one of the things I, I worked on latterly, so I left Nuffield and, and with, with a brilliant clinician, and we set up a clinic on Harley Street to run the world's most advanced health assessment, where people would come to us and for 15,000 pounds, we would manage their health a bit like you'd get a brilliant financial manager managing Mm -hmm. your money. I would be a health manager managing everything to do with your health from, could there be something wrong with you? So which screening do we need? Is your body going wrong? So which tests do we need to identify changes in your physiology? And what are the best biological markers of feeling that we can quantify? 
So how do I measure mood state, libido, hormones, and, and functional medicine, which is this sort of new wave of medicine, is meant, there's brilliant technology out there. There's just not that many people who know how to use it. Mm. So in, in that process, you know, we again saw that, that medicine has over subspecialized, right? So you've got people going to these high-end Harley Street consultants with, with complaints that should have been dealt with by someone who's a bit more of a quarterback. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think lifestyle has done a little bit of the similar in terms of, you know, oh, I've got, I don't know how to eat. I'll go and see a clinical nutritionist mm. or I'm not sure how I move. I'll go and see a physiotherapist. There's, there's a base level where I think, you know, a fitness professional with increased skill should be the health and well-being specialist who understands when they move to physio and when the physio moves to sports medicine doctor and when the sports medicine doctor moves to orthopedic surgeon. But I think everyone sees sort of anything outside of their immediate lane as a bit of a hot potato and we're quick to refer. Now, yeah. if I, mean, I think that's hard even like in the personal training field because yeah. people, I think there's, there's different types of people who will deal with people's questions in different ways. And you see a lot of times on social media, of the people who, and personal trainers who will try to advise and everything because they feel like they're doing the right thing and trying to help, where sometimes they're overstepping their lane and giving incorrect advice with with no ill intention. Yeah, And I think that's that's sometimes where it's it's okay to say, I don't know. And then it might be a case of referring someone. So there's kind of a gray area that way. It's like, you want to help, but you shouldn't. I agree. And I think that's the key point. Yeah. Right? So this sort of concept of scope of practice, a good professional should spend most of their time saying, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. You know, before this, we're sort of, you know, if you queue me up something absolutely terrible um, as a question, I'll yeah. probably say, hey, I'm not an expert in that, but I but I can have an opinion, yes. but just yeah. be careful that I don't give what perceives to be an expert opinion. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between an opinion and an expert opinion. Now, I think, you know, scope of practice for me is, it's people either get it completely right or completely wrong, as in they, they stay too tightly in their lane. Mm-hmm. So, oh, you're mentioning diet. I'm not a qualified dietitian. Yeah. I won't mention anything. You can help someone at any stage remove, you know, the, the 50% of their diet that's processed junk yeah. food. You know, mm-hmm. you're seeing people turning up in 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 quite you know advanced nutritional offices when they just needed someone to help them guide them to through their macros. You know, on a very simple mm-hmm. basis. They never understood that. So, I think there's 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 a place in between being overtly shackled and then there's your your rogue warrior who you know watched a, a youtube tutorial and now is giving you know pretty in-depth spiritual yeah. advice you know and and i think within those two frameworks i'm trying to say a bit like i did with the, the original nuffield training there is room for much much more if you know what you can't say yeah. you know, i always thought what you can't say and the biggest challenge in 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 well-being is causation as in Oh, you're overly fat because you've got too much cortisol. Yeah. So I now I might measure cortisol, and I, I've done that many times, and say your cortisol is high in someone who has too much weight, and there is a correlation with cortisol keeping body fat. Cortisol being the stress hormone, but it's it's entirely healthy at normal levels. What I can't say is X is because of Y. I can say, look, Y is high, and if we want to tackle X, then it might be strategically logical to reduce Y. Mm-hmm. What I can't say is that caused that. Your blood pressure is high because you're stressed. I can't say that. Your blood pressure is high and you're stressed. So if I improve your stress, then let's see what happens to your yeah. blood pressure. And and what we've got to bear in mind is human physiology is, is so much more complicated than you know change one thing and, and the thing you're worried about will, will click into space. Mm-hmm. We are an integrated machine beyond any machine out there, you know, between these inputs of how I move, how I nourish, how I recover, my environment that I find myself in and the way I think about the world, those sort of five areas all interface with my physiology. So the idea that a single thing I do will, will change that most complex of machines is, is a little bit fanciful. But 
if I change a few little things and I sustain those changes over time, then I can amend yeah. my physiology. So I think the, the biggest challenge is, is not knowing when to stop. You know, and I think there's room for more, but a little bit of guidance on when that becomes causative or when your language has drifted into diagnostic. If you shape that a little bit, I think I think the fitness professional can be the true well-being professional. And that's that's my passion. I think it's that in itself is a difficult space because how of how underregulated the fitness industry can be. And then also on the flip side of that, I think it's difficult for those fitness professionals who are in the industry to not listen to the negative voices of people being attacked saying you shouldn't speak about this when they've got every right to speak about it. I feel like, I don't know if you saw much of it because we pick up on a lot on socials, is there was a lot of negative backlash to fitness professionals who were, I suppose, promoting their own businesses, promoting their services and being shot down for doing that in regards to helping people with their weight loss journeys. We all know that's very seasonal and we all know that fitness professionals pick up on that in that point of the year and that's their... That's just how it how it is and how it's always been. How they will pick up business during that January period, whether that's because people are vulnerable, yeah. or whether that's because um, people need help during that time after Christmas. After putting on the fluff, there's a big backlash this year. I, I suppose a lot from uh, the body positivity kind of movement, yeah. and and people who had also gone through um, disorderly in to those sort of people. I also I almost felt sorry at a certain point for some personal trainers who felt like they couldn't market their own services which is helping other people yeah because because of the backlash and that's what that's what happens sometimes when you pick up that those that negativity like a rocket weighs you down and then it makes it very difficult for you to do the thing that you want to do which is help to help other people yeah i I mean it's it is a it's a minefield in terms of because now we have the the outraged outlier and social media makes them sound like they're the inlier yeah and this, this is a major problem in the fact that you know, the body positivity movement, you know, I I, I love, you know, mm. and, and I think aesthetically, from an attraction point of view, you know, if you are attractive, you're attractive, you know, it's, that's a radiation, that's not a body composition mm. number, you know, someone's not more attractive at 22% body fat than they are at 32%. That's, that's not my view. But from a sort of female point of view, both of those are pretty normal, actually. Yeah. But someone at 42% versus 22%, you know, that, that that's not an attractiveness thing. But that level of body adiposity that level of body fat does increase the risk of certain health conditions so from it's framing it to say look ultimately there is a risk to increase body fat that is not about what what our opinion is you know an opinion is is fascinating when it interferes with biology and if i take a true biology view if someone wants to have increased opportunity for flourishing physiology let me put that bizarre phrase in and that might mean flourishing in terms it doesn't fall over into diabetes doesn't fall over into cardiovascular disease or heart attack or stroke but equally it it flourishes in the sense of energy production it flourishes in hormonal management those other things then it's likely statistically that if their body fat is outside of range and they move it into range their physiology will work better Mm -hmm. if you put that out there as a a headline message you'll, you'll be pillared yeah, because there'll be people who yeah. function really well at 44, 45% body fat, um, but they're an outlier. And and that, that makes any messaging where you're saying, I'm going to change you from A to B difficult because the people who don't want to change from A will immediately feel that you're insulting their standard yeah. of living. So I think I, I, there's not a natural solution to that, no. you know, and, and <laughs> but I think, again, within the messaging, we've got to, we've got to bear in mind fitness has done very well at messaging to fitness for a long period of time, yeah. you know, and, and it hasn't necessarily listened to the voice of the non-gym goer. 
know, where, where I like to think I specialize is not so much in the 13.5% of people who are in the gym already because they're pretty engaged, right? You know, they, they have understood that there's a benefit to them, be that aesthetic in terms of how they look, be that to mood stability, be that to a performance target. They've understood that they need to do something to their body mm -hmm. to achieve benefit X. Then you've got the other end, the sort of clinical end, who've had a heart attack and know that they now need to rehabilitate or they've developed a cancer and they need to improve their tolerance of chemotherapy. They're, they're also in that level where they want to amend their physiology too. But most people are in the middle, right? So most people are, are not particularly well, but not you know, suffering from an underlying health condition mm. or significance, but haven't been communicated to in a way that says, I recognize this isn't your passion. Why don't you join with me to see if I can make your body work a bit better? Mm. And I think body composition has, has been too blunt an instrument to try and engage that group. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and I think they, you know, they don't care that much about how they look. You know, the dad bod revolution was was useful for me, you know, and, <laughs> and, and you know, being a dad and having, a, you know, not necessarily a dad bod, but, you know, fundamentally, I'm not ripped. You know, so within that bracket, lots of my friends wouldn't wouldn't aspire to be ripped, but they would aspire to be well. Yeah. They would aspire yeah. to have more energy. They'd aspire to have better mood stability. They'd aspire to have better sex drive. They'd aspire to have reduced risk of, you know, snapping your spine when you play that first game of squash. Yeah. But that messaging to normal people about what is the opportunity of a little bit more i think is is often lost by personal trainers sort of talking about shreds yeah so i think when we're looking at body composition the, the complexity of that middle group is 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 much wider but i often see body composition as a byproduct of those changes not as the, the singular reason for them mm -hmm. and i think you know if if fitness keeps banging the drum at, at it's a body composition amendment it, it will keep itself at 13 and a half percent and you know everyone's talking about can we get that to 15 percent, 20 percent, 25 percent it won't because th those other people don't know why they should be in a gym mm -hmm. i think i mean that's a difficult thing is with talking about the body positivity movement i think they're a vital part of the the fitness space i think what you get sometimes from either end of the camp like you get those people who are fitness professionals who are talking about the shreds getting cut getting diced and then the other end you've got people who are banging a drum for body positivity who I don't think really understand what the point of body positivity is. They just latched onto something. It's like these extremists yeah. who are, and they have the loudest voice voices. It's like when you get football fans who go and you get thugs who go to the game yeah. and they represent uh, that football community, but they're such a small minority yeah, with, a, with a bad attitude, but then everyone picks up and says and tarnishes the whole totally with the same brush. And that's what sometimes happens with body positivity. And that's why I get the bad name. So I'm not, Tarnishing everyone's saying, but I think it is a small minority who causes some of that in in January in the January spaces yeah. and hits back at stuff which doesn't represent what the body positivity movement is really about, and that's where it's it's difficult because you start getting those echo chambers and yeah. and everything else that that ties in with it. Interesting, and I, you know, I'm probably not close enough to to your world to have seen people getting pillared for for their position, so I've I've, I've got to be wary. I think you know, there's often a, a, a two separate issues, you know, in terms of I'm I'm telling someone that the way they are needs to change. I think that fitness has, has got to soften its tone largely in, in that regard in terms of, you know, we're an elite club, come and join us. If you're not with us, then, then you're excluded. Yeah. And I think there's a softening that, that for me is, is about a little more empathy to what might people's goals be beyond body composition. I think that's crucial. But on the, on the other end of the spectrum, on the body positivity movement, you know, again, we have to recognize that increased body fat carries with it an yeah. increased likelihood of a multitude of challenges 
And so if my job is to look after someone, you know, uh, my, my old clinical you know, director used to use the examples of, of Chinese medicine where, you know, that the physicians to the emperor were sort of were killed when the emperor died. It was the ultimate incentive to be a good doctor. You know, that my life, if I'm looking after you, my life is bound to your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I used to sort of view that as, as my job looking after a client. If it's if my life is dependent on the changes you make, then I've got to try and find a way in which I can bring your body composition down because too much body fat drives inflammation. That inflammation could be, again, correlated with an increased risk of cancer. Yeah. That could be an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. That's statistical. That, that's not you know, me, me picking those things up. Again, you might not be that person, right? You might have a genetic, you might have won the genetic lottery and, yeah. and you can withstand those things. But if my job is to make you live as well and, and as long as possible, then I'm incentivized to, to bring that composition down. But to do it to say you don't look good, is not the right way to go. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's the challenge. You know, it can't be about your appearance. Yeah. It has to be about what is the opportunity if I embrace improved physiology for you? And is that opportunity worth doing something that you're deeply uncomfortable with? And, and that bit's really important as well, that most of my life has been spent with people who don't go to the gym and have a perspective on it. But yeah. they also probably don't go to the gym, a lot of them, because they weren't that engaged in mm-hmm. sport. They weren't traditionally athletic. They felt ostracized by the PE culture at school. And, and so you've got these barriers to that, that middle population that are far more than it's not about body composition. They don't like the feeling of exertion. And not everyone gets the same endorphin mm-hmm. kick. You know, not everyone enjoys not being able to walk down the stairs two days after leg day. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and, and I'm one of those people. <laughs> you know, I can't bear, can't bear leg doms. Yeah. just can't take it. But yeah, fundamentally, if, if fitness wants to recognize those populations, it has to, again, broaden and soften its tone, but it has to have empathy with the fact that a lot of those people are are culturally not comfortable in an environment that's pro sporty pro aesthetics pro yeah. performance etc i think how you frame the the goal or the achievement for someone is is very tricky or is is makes sense to the individual depending on like where they're up to it in their fitness journey and what what they want to achieve like somebody who wants to shred the cuts etc is going to be incentivized by something very different to someone who's gen pop like for example with a lot of our members who come on board we've got a lot of them through the last couple of challenges doing a lot of running Mm. um and they've they've learned something very different from it i think and the way that they view running i think has changed quite a lot because a lot of i don't know you call it typical gym goers we'll we'll see running as cardio as a means to expend calories expend energy and when you see running for what it really is from moving from a to b from being present um, in in your in your own mindset of bettering your own performance, and then as a byproduct, like I, I'm probably in the best shape I've been, and I we do like a half marathon every Sunday. Lucy's doing a, an ultra this year. Yeah. I'm doing the London so marathon. Brave. So ready. Yeah. But I'm, still, <laughs> yeah, I'm still able to carry a lot of muscle tissue. Yeah. But my focus is is just a lot different. And even for people who come into the into our membership who we're already running. I think I've, I've learned a lot about strength and conditioning as well. For for example, those people who hate leg doms and want to be able to sit down on the toilet without feeling like they're going to pass out. Yeah. But having a fair look into that, like, well, if you actually did some leg training, it's probably going to help your time in running because you'd be a more powerful runner. Yeah. Not to the point where you have to be like Ronnie Coleman or yeah. someone with huge quads, but it's going to help you with your running. And when, when they see that slightly framed difference that I don't have to go and do a leg day and be blitzing through seven sets of leg extensions and 10 sets of squats. Yeah. But if I do this, a bit of strength condition work with inside, that's going to help my goal of being a better runner. Totally. Then 
you you give people a little bit of what they want with a little bit of what they need and it often helps them achieve that end result I, I think that little bit of what they want with a little bit of what they need is a great that, that could be a t-shirt <laughs> you pump out <laughs> because that you know that's sort of what we've, we're, I mean, we're trying to use something they want to yeah. create something they need yeah. you know to me again that's two things there you know i think both of yours you know me, me being a keen follower of you both online um i think you both represent the blend of fitness extremely well but you know your rationale i think you put a post out not that long ago then where you know you explain your reason for running and it, mm-hmm. and it was you know it was about how the, it made you feel mm-hmm. which is a really interesting concept yeah. and, and seems simple at many times to us who, who sort of live and breathe this all the time but you know so often people see exertion as a pure play calorie entity so it's going to end up in body composition or not and of course we know often with cardio you'll 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 backfill those calories you know more easily than you might do with with resistance exercise so the 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 changing of the framing is i'm not doing this for a body composition outcome i'm doing this because it stabilizes my mood it helps Mm -hmm. me think about things is, is really important and lots of people don't think about um any lifestyle behaviors in that bracket and i think Coming back to the, the overlying point is what what is the incentive to drive someone to do something? You know, that, that want versus need. And I, I think going back to, to my time in medicine, it, there's a great assumption that the avoidance of disease is an, is a sort of empowering, motivating factor. Mm-hmm. Don't don't eat too much. You know, actually, you can't even say this, but there's a model that says don't eat too much carbohydrate. You'll gain obesity yeah. and then you'll get yeah. diabetes. Then you'll get increased risk of heart attack or stroke. Most 45 year olds got no idea what that is it's not tangible to yeah, them people jump off don't give a shit about that kind of thing they don't care and, yeah, and, yeah. and medicine has messaged well-being as the absence of disease you know so do this or you'll get this but but most people don't know what diabetes is most people if you've been close to it you might be a little bit more incentivized but i you know a male in my mid-40s can you believe it um you know i don't get out of bed on a wednesday morning to train to not have a heart attack yeah i get out of bed because it, it gives me something in the present and i think again w- where i've seen an increasing opportunity of messaging is is what is a present-based benefit that has a future forecast opportunity. Yeah. So, and that means you've got to talk about functionality, not disease. So functionality is how I feel and work today. And I, whether I'm whether someone's goal is body composition or not, I've got to try and find a reason why I would want to support an improvement in physiology based on how they feel and function, not a disease risk, which is intangible. Yeah. And that that generally comes back to a conversation about energy. Because energy, as much as that might sound like a floaty word, is probably the single unit that everyone would say, I would like more of. Mm -hmm. And if we look at energy just in a pure combustion point of view, it also correlates with how well our underlying physiology works. And, you know, I'm a physiologist by background. That's what what I call myself. So I'm interested in factors that positively inflect on my physiology versus factors that negatively inflect on my physiology. Mm -hmm. And if we take me as having energy levels 7 out of 10, then there's an interesting conversation on what are the factors that are negatively affecting my physiology? Can I dial them down? Mm-hmm. What are the factors that positively influence my physiology? Can I dial them up? And again, that doesn't need to be movement, nutrition, recovery. It's got to be a little bit of all of them, a smorgasbord, if you will, <laughs> of options. But when I, when I think of cardio, again, one of the, the things about cardio is fascinating is people think, oh, increased cardio would be decreased cardiovascular disease risk, you know, good mindset. But when we think of energy, you know, we go back to biology, you know, we look at what what is the physical unit of energy in the human body. It's the mitochondria, which is in every energy producing cell, and it combusts energy. It generates and manufactures energy. And one of the big differences physiologically between me, age forty four, can you believe it, and my dad, <laughs> age seventy nine, you know, can you believe it, is 
Uh, if you took a biopsy of both of us, two things will be prevalent. I'll have a decreased volume. He'll have a decreased volume of muscle compared to me, which yeah. is something called sarcopenia, the age-related loss of muscle mass. Yeah. And in the cells of his body, he'll have less mitochondria than me. And that will be a major reason why a 79-year-old appears and functions differently to a 44-year-old. Can you believe it? So, you know, and, and what's interesting about that is what's the major influence I can have on mitochondrial density is aerobic exercise. Yeah. Right? So if I'm trying to get, you know, a non-gym, non-interested person in a corporation to begin running or, you know, or interval walking or being more active, it's not about body composition. It's not about disease forecast. It's the very unit by which we generate energy is increased. Yeah. The fundamental core of energy production. So, you know, when, when you go to Palo Alto and the anti-aging conferences, which I've had the pleasure of going to, where everyone's sort of hoping they can in, inject, you know, fetal stem cells and live an extra 20 years, you know, on, on the Silicon Valley hills. The only things that really are, are proven to be working are, you know, retaining muscle tissue, keeping cardiovascular capacity. So you know, we've got movement and, and weight training reduced to sort of aesthetic hobbies. But what we're really talking about, are these are the, the fundamental behaviors that sustain the physiology that sustains our life. Yeah. So, but I'm going to use energy to get me to that conversation. And I'm not going to take a client through that, by the way, before they, you know, they, <laughs> they fall off their chair with boredom. But fundamentally, I'm saying, look, if you want to take your energy from seven to, to eight, can we get you more active? Yeah. Um, forget what that does to your weight. Forget what it does X, Y, and Z. And of course, there's better mood stability. There's better glucose control. There's better sleep depth. All those things will come out of it. But when we go back to our physiology and we say, what is the sum of my behaviors that nurture it? What are the sum of my behaviors that, that punish it? If I want to change the way I feel, then I've got to tip those scales somehow. somehow. With with your patients, as you will, yeah. do you feel like you have people who are, say, over 50 rather than under 50, but you might have some people come to you at 70 and it's like, it would have been really helpful if you did resistance training in your 30s to prolong life because we spoke about this so many times haven't we but in does it does it really prolong life people. or does it just mean they have a better um what's the word i'm looking for quality of life. better quality, quality of life, life. yeah hey it's a great question i think you know the two parts i i i no longer act as a clinician so i don't see anyone anymore i, I sort of popped out of of the the clinic i was involved in back end of last year i don't know what years which years which anymore but 2021 2021 yeah. i think it was in 2021 um to go away from client facing, but but most of that time was spent with that elder group because um, because they're more interested in prolonging their mortality. And for them, the, the trigger reason often is, look, particularly looking after high net worth individuals, they control everything, mm -hmm. right? They control what, how much they work, they control where they live, they control where they go, but they don't control when they die. So they want to add that to the portfolio of mm -hmm. control. And spoiler alert, you can't, but why not make sure that there's no you know, no, no, no sort of Steve Jobs pancreatic cancer under the hood. Yeah. You know, so they, they want to control what they can control. Yeah. So the screening, of course, is important to them. But the really interesting part is, can you still adapt physiology in those later years? And, and some of the best results I've ever seen were people 75 plus who embraced the concept of, of weight training. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where I was originally with weight training was, you know, yes, it was a great way to preserve bone mass, it was a great way to drive your aesthetics, you know, it's a great way to control body fatness, um, all those things. But but the ripples of, of lean tissue extend far beyond that into, you know, prolonged hormonal accessibility, you know, lots of people will feel that testosterone spike, you know, both both genders from, you know, from from training. But it's, you know, better, sta better stability of blood glucose, you know, mm -hmm. so my ability to regulate energy actually increases. And you've got really a sort of a tissue that really drives our, our 
our virility, our vivacity. And, and where we've seen people in later years, weight training, we've seen them increase how much lean tissue they've got. Now, lovely if I got them 30 years earlier, but you know, we, we can't live in the past. Yeah. I, I went famously, I say famously, no one's ever heard this story. Famous with my wife, you know, who, who yeah. has to listen to these things. Um, I went to a, a weight training conference for centenarians, right? So for what, pe sorry? For people over 100 years okay. old. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh my God, this would be fascinating. And they booked, I don't know who they thought was coming. They booked like, you know, the O2 arena. And there were <laughs> yeah. three of us in there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit like, you know, hello, yeah. over in the corner. Um, and the surmise of these studies was, you know, if you, if you give a 100-year-old resistance exercise on a progressive overload basis, they'll build lean tissue. And what does that mean for them? Increased functional strength, of course, um, which means they can move more, which means they can control their glucose better, which reduces their risk of, of blood glucose orientated problems, be that diabetes or, or affecting other organs. Increased bone density, which is malleable at certain stages. They, they just function better, right? But 100 years old, who's going to weight train a 100 year old? And, and, and I want to. So in, in you know, we had a, a client years ago who you know, put on two kilograms of lean tissue. So we, you know, I, I think... Uh, again, for me, body composition is, is a no-brainer. Everyone needs to measure it because fundamentally, if, if one of the major reasons I age is a progressive loss of muscle tissue back filled with increased body fat, mm. the earlier I pick that up, the better. And if my if I'm a, a cardio athlete like I am, an athlete has never been used in a looser <laughs> work ever, then I need to know if the work I'm doing is sustaining the volume of lean tissue I've got. And, and there'll come a point where it doesn't. You know, all the running, if I look at the best runners in the world, that, you know, they might weigh 60 kilograms, 58 kilograms. I'm sat here at 83 kilograms. That means my body's got a lot of muscle it can lose yeah. while running fundamentally. But, but I, I digress. So we took, you know, we stuck two, two, two kilograms on this, this elderly gen and, you know, all hell broke loose. Energy, you know, mood stability, um, libido, you know, things that, that are absolutely fantastic. And no one would ever do that because they're sort of nervous of, you know, what, what's the risk versus yeah. the reward. Yeah. And to the point where, you know, with, with my colleagues back at uh, my previous business, we set up a gym really to drive weight training into older people. And, and we looked at one of the key barriers to that, which was understanding which weight to use, you know, needing tutelage too closely. And we ended up um, going with a sort of electromagnetic um, eccentric gym equipment. So you probably heard of e-gym or yeah. Milon. So we, we put an e-gym circuit into a, into a building in Oxford um, with a view to... What's the easiest way to build muscle tissue? It's eccentric loading. Um, if you do that through the key sort of compound movements in elderly people, won't that be fascinating? And we did that for, for several years and saw really sedentary people increasing their strength by 80, 90% in a six week period. That's incredible. Average lean tissue increases one to two kilograms. But, you know, and then they're coming in going, oh, interestingly, I don't need my blood pressure medication anymore. Yeah. Interestingly, I can reduce my statin. Now, it's not the doctors are reluctant to take them off those things, but when we when we say what is lifestyle medicine what we've got to bear in mind is medicine's got very good very very good at taking away a, a biological symptom of, of physiological dysfunction that's a ridiculously stupid thing to say but you know we would have someone for example who's on a blood pressure medication on a, um, a, a digestive so one of the key medications prescribed is a proton pump inhibitor when you get too much stomach acid and they might be on a medication to stop their glucose going up too high so they're pre-diabetes something like metformin yeah. and you say okay they've seen three different consultants they've seen a gastro they've seen an endocrinologist they've seen a cardiologist each has said i'm going to take away the thing you've come to me with because statistically that thing increases your risk mm -hmm. then you go back and say well aren't those all just 
ripples of dysfunctional physiology. So if that individual is recovering better, that will decrease their blood pressure, that will decrease their stomach acidity. If that individual is recovering better, then that would also decrease the likelihood of fluctuating blood glucose levels. That's on, on shaky ground compared to the other two. Um, but if I increase their lean tissue, then I'll increase their, their glucose metabolism. So what, so what you've got is medicine just picking up the ripples of, of underlying dysfunctional physiology. Mm -hmm. and, and we just gave those people a physiological boost and then they didn't need the medication anymore. Yeah. And, and again, my, my remit there is saying medicine is, is an incredible, and particularly let's take the NHS, you know, it's an untouchable, glorious organization, but it's overloaded with, with, with treating effect variables, not cause variables. Mm -hmm. As in, you know, you can go, if you are, you know, someone who's highly stressed, doesn't move much, has a malnourishing, calorie-dense diet, then unless you have the genetics of a, you know, a sort of, you know, some kind of Roman warrior, yeah. you know, then, then you're going to manifest symptoms that will be treated traditionally by medicine. And that's not medicine's fault. That's really important that, that lifestyle medicine isn't, a, isn't an alternative to medicine. It's saying, look, most of the time when things are going wrong with the body, it's being caused by a dysfunctional lifestyle driving excessive negative impact on physiology. Mm. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? I think I've heard that being called labels like the silent killer or the silent epidemic, sarcopenia. Yeah. And I think it's difficult with like basic human psychology and how you incentivize human behavior because it's like, how do I speak to my dad who yeah. doesn't give a shit about weightlifting yes. to, to get him to do something? It's like, the, the big thing is like loss of independence, I think, isn't it? With, totally. With sarcopenia as well. It's like, well, dad, I just don't want to be wiping your ass when you're like 70, 80, so can you just go to the gym? <laughs> but he's he's the type of person who's always hated going to the gym. Like even when I started training when I was 17, 18, he despised it. He was like, you look like a dickhead. You're going to look stupid. Yeah. Weight, weight trainings for, for meatheads. You you know, all the, all the typical stuff. And he's never been into it. And only now he's, what, 61 62 he's starting to do a few bits because he's always hated it he's always hated me doing it but then suddenly i get into like ben what should i do with it yeah. these bands and now he's coming yeah, to ask so questions. Good. it's it's how you spoke about before people aren't incentivized by avoidance and that's interesting with human psychology because people don't do things based on avoiding they do things based on the benefits that they'll get out of totally of doing something that's why psychology is interesting like we spoke about this before um with like positive reinforcement and people don't won't, or won't change habits based on punishment and it's how we then communicate those sort of things for people to benefit from exercise and not say we're well, just going to be fat and it's 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 like it was that campaign that was on a while ago which was similar to the cigarettes campaign you know they do that real gory stuff of like yeah. around obesity and your lungs falling out and yeah and, and stuff like that it's like how how much is that actually work and like how much is that help is that avoidance yeah really helping people. We need to be singing a lot of the, the benefits that people are going to reap from from doing shit. And that's what that's a difficult thing why I some, sometimes even find myself speaking to my mum and dad about stuff yeah. is especially those people who haven't been around social media or or seen the, the side of fitness that we've seen is how do you communicate that with your parents? Because I think it, me and Cal were speaking about it the other day and he was saying, oh, I'm actually worried about, about my parents or my dad. Like, I want them to do something, but it's how you... You get them to do it. Yeah. Just just saying it's it's gonna stop you from such and such isn't help. We don't really care about that. It's it's how you communicate that and incentivize them to to pick up a dumbbell or a bottle or do or do something. And I still think even now part of the reason potentially my dad doesn't go to certain places and why he'll do some stuff in his bedroom mm. is because he doesn't feel confident in in a gym environment. I think that goes for a massive percentage yeah. of 
that generation, but also a massive percentage of, of our generation as well. And are nervous to set and stand in gyms and yeah. and go at it. it. And I think there's two key points there. First key point is parents will never listen to their children. <laughs> you, you, you could be a professor of cardiology, yeah. you know, and it's like, Agreed. you're still my boy, yeah. you know. So influencing our parents' behavior is, is a whole different page yes. in the psychology mm. textbook. And and my experience, and bear in mind, you know, that they're, they're, my psychological training is, is limited, to say the least, is that the opportunity is better than the than the, the, the cost position. Yeah. In the, here's the opportunity versus the cost. There was a brilliant advert a couple of years ago about a elderly guy who got a kettlebell. Um, it was a, I think it was a German advert. Um, he must have been in his 70s. And, and he started trying to hold the kettlebell out in front of him. Yeah. And he sort of did this training and all the neighbors thought he was crazy. And then Christmas Day comes around and his granddaughter comes over. It always makes me quite emotional, this thing. Uh, and he picks his granddaughter up to put the star on the Christmas tree. And he's trained oh, for that. And it's yeah. like really interesting. And in, in that advert, you have the, the greatest single example of, of what the benefit is to the aging population, which is retained functionality. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about two things, you know, longevity and then quality affected life years. So how many years am I going to be alive? Well, medicine can keep me alive pretty much, you know, when, when I've failed, so it can keep me alive, but my quality of life is poor. Mm -hmm. Quality affected life years will be largely down to my functionality, which, you know, in layman's terms, my ability to get up, move, sustain the, the, the behaviors that, that mean someone doesn't have to carry me on and off the toilet. And your volume of strength, which is, which is, a component of lean tissue the two correlate they're not directly associated is is the major factor in that mm -hmm. it, it's what is the opportunity that's where that advert was amazing it's, it's what's the what do i want to continue to be able to do you know and i always have this challenge that with elder people we, we wrap them so much in cotton wool that we do the exact wrong thing I, you know i mentioned it the the performex chat right last time gyms are full of the wrong people right you know they're full of people who who are probably okay outside of the gym they're sharpening their focus, they're, they're fine-tuning their physiology, mm -hmm. but they're, they're fundamentally quite well and they're using it to, to fine-tune versus a 60-year-old who is deconditioned who would, who would exponentially change their physiology by a bit more movement and a bit more resistance training. So that, that's a hugely interesting part. But the, but the benefit to those individuals is what is the what to me can I sustain if I retain my muscle tissue? I think... When I talk of retirement to companies, they're, they sort of want to prepare people for retirement, the psychology, the physiology, the health screening component. The biggest part of my talk is about sarcopenia. And I go, look, you're going to lose three to 5% of your muscle tissue every decade, maybe from 40 onwards, because your body's basically given you a chance to reproduce. And now the sustaining of that lean tissue doesn't seem worth it mm. because muscle tissue creates cell damage. It's an active tissue. So the body tries to preserve itself from a calorie point of view by, by wasting that tissue. Mm -hmm. So it's a self-preservation tool. But we've got, you know, by, by, by then making old people increasingly protected, by making sure we always give them a seat on the train, by making sure they never do anything, we accelerate that sarcopenia and we, we create a problem. And I've always got this dilemma that, you know, I will always give my chair up to an older person on, on the train. But in my mind, this, this, would, this would get me deplatformed. You know, I'm saying you should be standing and I should be sitting. I'm going to say that next time on the bus, like, oh, <laughs> told yeah. me, you fucking should stand yeah. up. <laughs> you know, and of course, I don't know whether they've just come from a yeah. terrible, you know, medical appointment or they've yeah. got, you know, all sorts of joint instability. But the reality is, you know, we, we, we have become an incredibly labor-saving, you know, environment for everybody. Yeah. But for elderly people in particular, you know, where they've got the mobility scooter, you know, these other elements that if you, if you don't have, if you have to go in them, then fantastic. But if we move people out of activity quickly, we, we accelerate the loss of lean tissue and we decrease their functional capacity. And what do we think is going to happen? 
you know, what, what, what do you think is going to, you know, once it's gone, unless you're then going to say, oh, in, in six months time, I'm going to rebuild that tissue. You're accepting just a, a decreasing road to, to frailty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to me, again, taking back to my, my, my people in their mid seventies, they can still build tissue. They can still increase their capacity. So we've got to create a cultural shift and that, that will have to extend to the facility. Right? So the facility is, is wrong because the people in it are, are not trained to deal with, with that particular group. There are special populations bits you can do, but the, the environment's wrong, the music's wrong, the layout's wrong. So if the gym wants to be full of 60 year olds, it's got to reinvent itself tip to toe. And it's going to need a professional who wants to do that. And we're seeing through Europe, Belgium, Germany, very specialist resistance training centers for elder people becoming quite normal. And, and with a sort of almost a shop footprint, um, EMS training, which you know is this electromuscular stimulation, which is which is increasing in its its capacity, is another way. I know again, uh, Phil Horton at, at Mia Body Tech, and, and they're seeing more and more activity in the space because people are looking at, at shortcut ways of creating muscle overload mm-hmm. in people who don't like the experience, don't like you know the gym culture, but want to keep or build muscle tissue, and I think you know that is the conundrum the the route to improving that i I don't necessarily know so i'll I'll do a talk on retirement and i'll explain sarcopenia and i go this will affect your libido this will affect whether you can put your suitcase above your head in the in the Mm -hmm. the station this will affect whether you can move and whether you can move will affect lots of other things and and i'm not being ableist by saying that because if you're in a wheelchair i can still increase your movement and, and do lots of things but fundamentally we haven't got a platform at the end they go please god you're not going to send me to the gym are you ollie I'm like, well, the gym is is the best place to go to overload muscle tissue because that's what it's done. But because you're not a farmer, you don't carry, you know, 15 buckets of water from the well 200 meters away. So you need an artificial way to to create progressive overload because society has removed that capability from you. But but in amongst all of this, the value of lean tissue to human physiology is absolutely incredible. You know, if I stick... I can't put a kilogram on either of you two, but if I say, <laughs> let's take me, <laughs> someone who could do with a kilogram more lean tissue, I'll see improved, you know, joint stability, I'll see improved bone density potentially, I'll see better management of glucose, I'll see better management of hormones, I will see physiology enhanced above and beyond looking like I've got a kilogram of extra muscle. Yeah. So so where's that message into older people and where's the facility and capability to treat them? And there's a massive opportunity there, but um, someone's got to be bold enough to take it. Mm-hmm. I think what quite a good approach is, and I'm just going to use my family as an example because there's just so many examples I could use. If you start doing stuff earlier and weight training, resistance training, whatever you're doing, if something happens to you when you are 60, 70, 80, you will recover so much better. So I'll use yeah. my nan. Yeah. She's a great example, isn't she? She's a warrior. Yeah. Um, so my nan had breast cancer 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And recovered really well Amazing. and then last year she got breast cancer again but they're super fit and healthy they went to david lloyd until they were my grandpa went in his 80s yeah. like david lloyd's actually quite a good gym oh, yeah. i would yeah. say for the old generation as well it, it, by having the tennis and the family yeah, component, it does better the... the demographic will be much better within david yeah lloyd. definitely so she did that and when she got breast cancer last year, she had to have a mastectomy, but she rose using the rower 2000 meters every single day. Legend. She stopped only for the period of her surgery yeah. and she's doing it again now. And she's like 85. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't think you would have recovered as well as you, you have if you didn't do that for those 30, 40 years prior. So I guess an approach to tell parents or, tell your dad is well if some if you had a car crash yeah. 
when you're 80, you're, you're probably going to be fine. Like you recover quite well if you worked on yourself. Previous, it's it's quite a hard way to articulate it. I think it's still a hard sell though because oh, it is a hard sell because you've not actually had the accident yet. No, but I think even happened. for me, like when I I nearly died from having meningitis, and they said the only reason that you're now here is because of your yeah, physical yeah, fitness yeah. levels. But I'm I'm not going to work out because in ten years time I could get meningitis and die. Yeah. It's, I think it's still a hard. It is a sell it is a people, hard sell. It, it does like make it makes sense approach. when you speak about it. I think it's just a hard sell yeah, to say yeah, someone, isn't it? It's it's a tra- and, and the data is following that. And we yeah. you know we always used to think of prehabilitation as I, I want to build my musculoskeletal capability. So before maybe I have a you know an arthroscopic knee repair. So the more you know I've got quad conditioning or, or total you know lower limb conditioning, the sooner I'll be back to what I need to do mm. after exercise. And that that data has been around for a long period of time. And, and my memory may or may not serve me correct, but Professor Greg White, who's a, a bit of a legend and, and has got a clinic down on Harley Street, he's the guy who does all the challenges with the comic relief mm-hmm. team. He's oh, a yeah. ex-Olympian. Yeah, yeah. uh, he's a fabulous bloke. He, I think, is, is out of Liverpool, John Moores, and, and still doing studies. And they had some prehabilitation work on recovery from cancer. And, and there were two or three studies that just popped out in a short period of time showing that, you know, the fitter and fitter itself is a, is a broad word, but yeah. the you know the more physically active people have been prior to um, cancer treatment, and I'm not sure whether that was surgical or, or, or chemotherapy, then the better the outcomes, which is entirely logical. Right? If we if we take away the words of the diseases, the better my physiology works, the better it's going to deal with, you know, incident X, and that mm-hmm. could be a car accident, could be a cancer, could be any other thing. And if we look at Again, these are, these are controversial topics and, and you don't want to upset anyone. But look at when people are, are passing away from an underlying health condition in the situation of a COVID. And, and again, for every rule, there's an exception. But you say, look, COVID isn't taking those people's lives. COVID is drawing energy to the immune system to deal with that. Yeah. And whatever it was is, is, is left to run amok. And the more collective energy there is, then the less likely the underlying health condition is to, to manifest. So... You, you can't say, oh, if you were fitter, you wouldn't that person wouldn't have died, you know, from COVID or for, from issue X. But I, you know, why is COVID then a greater risk for older people? What is what is the underlying physiology of an older person? It's you know, loss of mitochondria, loss of lean tissue, loss of cardiovascular capacity. It's underlying physiology. Aging is is in America trying to be treated like a disease, which puts you on the sort of whack job list. But you know, saying aging, if we know the sort of seven biological pathways that happen as we age, what happens if we block them all? You know, and, and there's gerontologists there who are a bit wild and wacky saying we could maybe have a child born today that lives to be a thousand years old. Yeah. And, you know, dodgy. And again, ethical, societal, you know, don't, don't get me started. But, you know, when we look at what it is to be fit, it isn't about what I look like. It's not how fast I can run a 5K. It's what is the reserve of my physiology to deal with yeah. challenges. And that challenge mm-hmm. could be a bereavement. That challenge could be a virus. That challenge could be a car crash. And the data is sort of coming to say, oh, specific fitness would decrease my risk of complications from, from you know, post-breast cancer, for, except, for example. But just on a logical basis, we take a step back. If the body works better, and that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the hobbies. We're not talking about behaviors. We're not talking about appearance. We're saying if the body is has got more inputs that support the way the physiology works, won't it cope with X better? Yeah. And, and that, again, to me is saying, let's not divide into, into the hobby brackets of fitness, nutrition, sleep, let's say what are the collective inputs on my physiology am i happy that and and energy is a good biomarker to say actually if my energy is low maybe some of those inputs are are not as they should be Mm -hmm. and the challenge with the body i talked 
earlier about the fact that you know you can be medicated for these these messengers. So if I get if I if I lead a, a lifestyle that inflects negatively on my physiology, I might get signals of that, right? So my blood pressure being up might be a signal. Me producing too much stomach acid might be a signal. Mm. I'm getting something wrong. Again, there'll always be a genetic reason that isn't behaviorally driven. But for lots of people, those things are markers that your physiology is in some sign of distress. And we we sort of stick a bandage over it and go, okay, well, hang on, that's popped up to tell me that I'm I'm fundamentally leading a lifestyle that my body doesn't like. Oh, here's a, a blood pressure medication. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's popped up with more stomach acid because my body's doing something I don't like. Oh, here's a, an anti-acid. Yeah. Oh, this has popped up. And it sort of ripples up and, and then it pops up in mood stability. And then we give a, you know, a, 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 you know, an SSRI to keep my serotonin levels high. And that sort of collective popping up is, is a really interesting thing. And, and another pop-up sign would be, would be fatigue. Right, so fatigue is a really good biomarker that I'm not getting the balance right into my physiology, either through movement, recovery, nutrition, et cetera. But we can we can caffeinate. Yeah. Right. So you know, we we started this chat about caffeine, you know, before before the podcast started. And, and again, and trust me. <laughs> and trust me, I caffeinate. You know. But what we got is, you know, if I, I went through Paddington Station, you know, a couple of days ago and every single person had a coffee in their hand. Mm. Every, you know, Every single person, and that will, uh, I say coffee, could have been a green tea, could have been a, could have yeah, been a chamomile. Been a tea. I may, I'm making broad assumptions for the sake of, of simplicity, but you know, we, we have a caffeine problem, but isn't fatigue just another biomarker of dysfunctional physiology? Mm -hmm. and, and what we've got is people saying, well, I'm not going to repay enough energy naturally. You know, the human machine is, is, runs on a battery. Right? We are expending energy today. At some point, we need to recoup energy, and we have biological systems that help that. We, Broadly, when I when I look at physiology, we look at one of the first things we do is look at the autonomic nervous system, which is what we can capture through something called heart rate variability, which is the, the very subtle fluctuations in my heart rate. And you can quantify the on an on an internal physiological basis how often someone is spending in a in an energy out state, which would be incorrectly called fight or flight. Mm -hmm. But there's a nervous system that elicits fight or flight that basically prepares my body for energetic processes. There's another nervous system that slows everything down biologically called the parasympathetic that elicits my digestive function, cell repair, immune modulation, etc. And the human machine, like any other machine, needs to expend energy and recoup energy. Um, and over years of measuring that, as in you can measure how often someone is ready for, if you like, energy out and how often they're ready for energy in, mm -hmm. we often find that that, that balance is poor. You know, that, that balance is poor. We have a new disease, not hyper-stress, but under-relaxation. You know, if I had to say in my experience, what is one of the key lines of best fit that's true of most people is we have insufficient activities that drive the body into quality energy recovery. Mm. And in doing so, we create fatigue. And in doing so, I drive myself towards both behaviors like caffeine, but also refined carbohydrate, also argumentative behavior, because that will increase adrenaline, which gives me energy. I'll potentially be into more sort of dopamine rewarding schemes like social media and, mm. and screen time. There's some big assumptions going here, but let's, let's yeah. you know, people will be like, listening to this, going, what, the, what the hell is he talking about? I nearly swore then. Nearly my, first, <laughs> my first public swear. Kind <laughs> of so, <laughs> run the line thin. You know, so assuming I'm not talking total gibberish, th there's a lot of the behaviors that people seem embedded into are really ripples of an imbalanced provision of sufficient yeah. energy. And and that to me again is is another example where it's not a, it's not medicine stepping in at that point. It's 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 providers saying, mm -hmm. well, then let's just caffeinate you more. Yeah. You know, the, the, the rise of energy drinks, the rise of, of things that give us a false energy to replace the fact that we're completely ignoring the fact the body is not recouping its natural energy. Mm -hmm.
Do you know what? Super interesting when you were saying that. I was like looking at my Garmin and my Whoop because I, I love stats. I always have since I was a swimmer. Oh my goodness, give me a start. I love it. This Garmin thing tells you everything. Yeah. And I bought, uh, they're, like, they're kind of like a Fitbit, yeah. but I bought one for my nan, Gramps and my mum. Yes. And my nan will track her steps on it. And she's like, I've done 4,000 steps today. And I'm like, that's so good. Love. That's, that's like so fantastic because I know with fitness trackers, I think maybe like our generation, some people can take it too far in terms of getting obsessed with your calories burned and yeah. I've done this, I need to now go and do some cardio because I've not hit my move goal or whatever. Yeah. And that's something that's a completely different conversation. It's That can be really difficult. But I do think having like some sort of fitness tracker in whatever shape or form, whoever it is, it's like, oh cool, this is my heart rate, this is my resting heart rate, this is, I've got a, um, oxid something on here. Yeah, there's a pulse oximeter on there. So yeah. data is my jam. So oh, I, love, I love data. I think cool. some people need less data in life. Some people need more. I think some people just get too anal about stuff. I've been there before where I've got too anal about data. The, and move, the move ring on the Apple Watch. Yeah, and the same with like calories burned, calories intake. There's some people who are really against like my fitness pal and stuff because they mm. just don't think that you should be using that much data to track something like a food source. And yeah. I understand where some people are coming from, but then there's that conversation about before about correlation and causation. Like with my fitness pal, it are people who are more likely to have those obsessions and disorderly eating patterns more likely to use something like MyFitnessPal or is MyFitnessPal causing more people to have yeah. disorderly eating? And that's like, the, you will never, I don't think we'll ever discover that. And that's where we've got to be careful about or how we push our own experiences, I think, onto other people. I totally, totally agree. And, and, and data is, is exactly one of those. And yeah. I always think with data is what is the question I'm asking? Right? Because any test, if you're running a test, Probably a cholesterol, what's the question I'm asking? Is it too high, is it too low? What's 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 your increased risk of cardiovascular disease mathematically as a result? So we've got to say, you know, for me that there's two different types of wearable. There's a wearable that's quantifying something you already know, but would like a, a, an exact marker on. Mm -hmm. So if you wear you know anything that tracks steps, you know, it's not a surprise to you if you get home, oh my God, I've done 12,000 12, steps because you walked yeah. 12,000 steps, right? So it's, you know, it shouldn't be a total revelation. Yeah. It might be, a really good catch point to say, oh, I hadn't noticed that I've only done 3,000 two days in a row, but you would have known you didn't do much. Yeah. So it, it's giving you something you already know, but it's turning it into a number. To a certain extent, body composition is a bit similar to that. You know, you know if it's too much, you know if it's too little, but it fine tunes you in. That, so there's wearables that in those situations just help you calibrate whether what you're doing is sufficient, can work to motivate. You know, there's, um, there's, there's lots of step um, apps that work sort of in a, in a collegiate fashion. Magic Mountains, a company I've spoken to recently who who unify people within organizations to do combined steps to, to walk to the top of mountains. Oh, and nice. yeah, anything yeah, anything nice. that gets more movement in yeah. a way that doesn't, again, look punitive or, mm. or ostracizing, I, I love entirely. The, the new wave of wearables are measuring something that, that you don't intrinsically know. And that's where Whoop comes in. So I wear the Whoop. I forgot it this morning, interestingly. Oh. I put it on charge because my wife moved the charger just to, if she's watching this, but she won't. I know all about that. <laughs> Moving stuff in the house. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's been, it's become mine. Just, just if, if the charger you need, just buy another charger on Amazon do, straight away. I do, I do tend to move a few things to keep things nice oh. and tidy. And then sometimes I move things. Where is it? Well, it doesn't no. even, it doesn't it's even somewhere. matter if I buy a new one because yeah. I've bought a new charger before. And then if it, if it just, sits on the side and has no use, Lucy will just bin it anyway. <laughs> so we ended up paying £150 for a new ring, ring doorbell the other day because Lucy bin the battery and the charger for it, which yeah. is 
quite I a delightful think conversation. I did, though, but sometimes I can't remember. <laughs> I, I'm, so, I'm so glad I'm going to help you two work through yeah. this. You know, <laughs> in my own experience, yeah. you know, a charger should never be moved. You know, that, that, you know, that yeah. certain things can move. No, but actually, with the Whoop ones, it can sit on top of it, can't it? It can sit on top yeah. of it. It's a, and it's a funny old charger. It's a really weird, Really funny charger. It? I, I got so crossed funny. with Whoop and I said, I was like, I'm really crossed with this, you know, with, with this particular device because it's not working. And then I realized it was user error. And you know, when you're yeah. wrong, you, you know, you're really crossed with yourself. Yeah. So I, I humiliated myself to the Whoop admin team. <laughs> but beyond that, you know, it, it's a good device because Whoop and Aura, so Aura Ring is, is doing a similar yes. thing, are of course quantifying movement. They, they work, you know, as, with an accelerometer function, but their skill is heart rate variability. Mm. So they're measuring the nervous system that's controlling heart rate. So I'll get my heart rate on a Whoop. Let's imagine my heart rate 60 beats per minute. Of course, a normal heart rate doesn't beat metronomically. It doesn't beat once per second. So that the slight variations in heart rate will determine which nervous system is, is running my internal physiology. So going back to autonomic nervous system, I'm going to be slightly painful for two minutes, but you know, our, our, we control our motor nervous system. So as I move my arms and move my head, but yeah. I don't control what my temperature is. I don't control what my heart rate's doing, my blood pressure, what digestive secretions I'm producing, which hormones I'm producing. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't control those yeah. things. My body's regulating them to sustain homeostasis, that internal state where, where my internal environment is matched to what the external world needs. So if I go somewhere where there's a huge threat to me, and I recognize that through my senses, my physiology prepares for threat by making my blood clot a bit quicker in case I get cut, I don't want to bleed to death, by producing a, a broader diameter of my eyes so I can see more risks from the peripheral vision, increased heart rate, increased sugar in my blood. So what, what we call the fight or flight response <clears throat> is actually a, a, an acute version of something that's chronically available all the time, which is I can speed my physiology up if my eyes and senses recognize a purpose to do so. Mm -hmm. If my eyes and senses recognize the need to slow my physiology down. For example, if Ben brings in some delicious homemade snacks, mm. I smell them and I get a rumbly tummy because I move more blood into my digestive system. I prepare my body for nourishment. Or if we you know, dim the lights and put on some chill music, our body prepares for rest and recuperation, our heart rate drops, our blood pressure drops. Mm. So <clears throat> my internal physiology is always moving. And it's generally moving with an acceleration or a deceleration. And by quantifying heart rate variability, we can determine what, what which nervous system is most dominant and whoop and aura are doing that so where whoop is determining load it's yes it's it's an amalgam of heart rate and how long i'm spending in heart rate zones but it's real talent is in recovery where it's quantifying how often i'm in this parasympathetic energy restoring state and whether the volume of that is sufficient against the load volume that i've got so i got whoop because as again a middle-aged man who's got a busy job a young family was commuting I very quickly overtrain. So if I train three times a week, and that training would generally be running or, or, or some kind of cardiovascular sport, I'm fine. If I train four times a week, I might get an upper respiratory chest infection. That's quite, again, this is all pre-COVID. So I've got a tipping point where a certain volume of training, which isn't a lot, right? It's not, but, but that volume of training on top of the other load in my you. life. It's like personal to you. It personalized me. So yeah. what I'm looking at is, can I afford to train today based on the volume of recovery I've had in the previous 24, 48 hours? Mm -hmm. and, and ever since I've won the whoop, um, I've managed that threshold. And there'll be days where it says you can take on loads of load and I'll think, you know, I don't really fancy it today. So, <laughs> but it, it's given me something that I, I don't exactly mm. know. Now that heart rate variability metric is to me probably the most powerful unit of measurement in human physiology. So I, I love the fact it's becoming more and more demo, you know, sort of democratized, mm -hmm. is that the right word? And Garmin actually take the formula from a company called First Beat 
um, which for me have got the, the best heart rate variability for formula in the world. Um, so it's trying to work out when you should train again. So it'll give you your recovery yeah. index. And, and that again is born out of that particular science which I'll explain in great detail on my future practice course, by the way, <laughs> uh, you know, for those interested. But yeah, principally, how we use heart rate variability is interesting, but what we're really seeing is it's a marker of whether I'm, I'm pushing myself too hard and not getting enough recovery. And that pushing yourself hard doesn't just include exertion, it includes psychophysiological exertion, yeah. as in if I have a really busy day but don't move much, I'll still see load. Mm. I've, I've just done a, a, a blog where I wore my whoop for coaching my son's football team 24 hours after I won the week playing nine, 60 minutes of, of nine-a-side football at a terrible, terrible standard compared to, you know, everyone else. So <laughs> I was going to say compared to myself, <laughs> compared to everyone on the, on the pitch. And interestingly, the load of the two is about the same. So one, one, I'm playing, you know, aggressive men's football with a group of, you know, I once could have played for someone, men. Yeah. And then the other day, I'm standing by the side of my son's pitch and, and coordinating eight and nine-year-olds to, to stay roughly in formation. Yeah. But my load of the two was was equivocal. Really? Yeah. And That's one I'm moving and one not. That's interesting, isn't it? Really interesting. It's like we, completely different. Completely different. And the body only recognizes one stress. Mm. And whether it's dynamic movement, whether it's a positive stress, like watching my son's football game, whether it's an entirely negative stress, like a horrific board meeting with an yeah. investor. So in understanding load goes into the same pot, we can start to equate, okay, maybe I don't do a high intensity interval training session the day after I've had a really difficult mm -hmm. board meeting. And then you start to also calibrate the input of other factors like the role alcohol has in suppressing quality mm -hmm. recovery, which would be the first thing people notice. But I digress. So, you know, from a wearable point of view, you know, if it's giving you something that you can use structured fashion, I think it, it's great. But I generally, previously when I worked with clients would say, let's use date, let's use, let's use it to calibrate you. You're my fitness pal for a week, two weeks. Let's wear a pedometer for a week, two weeks. Let's understand where, where the behaviors are that, that are, are not contributing to your, your physiology positively. Let's amend them and then let's forget about it for a bit. Mm. Let, let's not use the data as, as something you're beholden to because it's a tool to answer a question. It's not the solution itself. Mm. And I think with sleep in particular, when we look at sleep, it's sleep is the absence of thought. Sleep is the absence of competition, the absence of quantification. You know, if someone doesn't sleep well, you remove clocks from the bedroom. You don't want, you don't want things that, that ask your brain to solve problems. So what I don't want to do is, is be thinking, oh my goodness, how much am I spending in REM sleep, stage three yeah. sleep? Because that that's the antithesis of what sleep needs, which is the absence of those thoughts. So if you're going to try and improve sleep through a wearable, I think again, it's a calibration device to say, oh, actually I sleep much better when these are the habits and behaviors in that preceding day. Once those habits and behaviors are established, then let go of the device, let go of That's it. something that's difficult sometimes. Like yeah. I have that conversation with, with members and clients sometimes that, they become so stressed out about not getting good sleep totally. that they then don't sleep properly because yeah. they're so stressed about trying to get the good sleep. And I think that's the the difficult thing with data. And I suppose the big question is is why why are you tracking that data? Like even even for myself, like we we have um, our app connected to like some of the health apps so, that we, so members can pull through data. But even from for me, like I've stopped measuring my active calories in a, in a weight session just because i asked myself why i'm i'm not that i'm not using that weight session like a hamster wheel to try and expend energy i'm using it to to get stronger to build myself up so for me i don't really know need to know how many calories expended yeah. and I, again that's just like my i know where my own psychology is and my my past experiences are with exercise and how sometimes it got toxic and that's just me personally yeah. from from over analyzing data totally so so now I'm more experienced with what I know works for me. I know that 
I, sh- I shouldn't track that part of it. And that's where it's very individual to to each person, I think. Totally. And, and again, I, I would like to see the role of the fitness professional helping people curate their own data point, right? So yeah. it, what's interesting about, for me, well-being is it's, it's product-led, not service-led. So Whoop are telling us how to recover. They're doing a pretty good job, but they're mm. biased because they see everything from Whoop's perspective, yeah. mm. my fitness power from its perspective. And, you know, I, I would like the gym of the future to have a sort of a, you know, a data portal where people upload their data and someone goes, that, that, ignore that, ignore that, yeah. drop this, pick this up. Because at the moment, people are being led by products that are promising them a solution. And of course, data isn't a solution. It, it's, it's the pathway to a solution. You know, the date, if, I, if I run a test data, it doesn't make anyone healthier from testing mm. you. No test ever made anyone healthier. It allowed you to make a better strategic decision. So what is the strategic decision I'm making based on the test data? Mm-hmm. And, and in a strange way, people have, have got slightly convinced that the wearing of the device gives them health. It doesn't. It gives you a potential answer to an improved behavior. Mm-hmm. And if you do take that, great. If you don't take it, also no guilt. I, mean, I, I got the... I got the Peloton during lockdown, pretended it was for, for the wife. Um, How did you find that? I loved it. Loved it. But far more than I thought I'd love it. Right? So I, I don't like spinning particularly. Running is my therapy. So yeah. I've always run as my way of clearing my head, of managing my sleep, of managing, you know, really energy. You know, and, and so I didn't want to miss out on the, the aspect of running. So I felt like it was going to steal from running to a yeah. large degree. And also I've just never felt significant fitness gains from spinning because you can easily just push a loaded flywheel and then let it turn. Yeah. What I was amazed at was the quality of the instruction. I thought it was really, it was it was highly engaging, you know, and the camera work, the production value of the Peloton was really good to the point where you're standing up, they're looking up at you when you're sitting down, they're looking down at you. And and the engagement through through the screen was was intelligent. The bike itself did a good job, but the quantification of outputs was, was, was the hook. Right? Yeah. So... My average wattage, which I will not share with you two, because <laughs> we're you not know. we're not big. Cyclists, I don't use it. Good. Okay, bike. No. I'm still not going to yeah. share it because you yeah. know you get on your first session and kill it. But what's interesting is it always compared me to me. And initially, when I got the peloton, it's like oh, you know, and it and it literally shows you. So if you do a 30 minute ride, it will show you. It's an arbitrary figure that's almost basically a mimic of calories. Yeah. But you know, you've got your cadence, you've got your resistance, and you get your wattage output. And that wattage would be familiar to anyone who rides bikes or does their Zwift and whatnot. Yeah. And you can do things like an FTP test and all sorts of cool bits, which gives you your, your suggested power zones. And, and it's it's clever. But you get this output that says, oh, you know, on your last 25-minute ride, Ollie, you, you're you like 5% ahead of where you are now. And you're like, yeah. who was that Ollie guy? <laughs> <laughs> he was doing really fit. And then you do, and, and increasingly, initially, like, I'm going to beat, I'm going to beat. And I'd find myself in like a sprint finish against yeah. Ollie two weeks ago. Yeah. You know, and I, I did this one session <laughs> where I got off the bike and I was, and I was I am white, right? But I went like whiter than white. <laughs> you know, I went, I was, and I was, I was basically sort of dry retching. Yeah. And, and it's in our, it's in our, our shared kitchen, tiny area. And I was like, what's happening? I was like, just had to beat myself. <laughs> had to beat myself. Wasn't necessarily the session I needed, you know? And, and interestingly, then you're at the point where every session now I lose to myself because I, I got COVID just before Christmas. Yeah. I was really cautious about big cardiovascular overload in, in the aftermath of that. So I'm watching constantly old Ollie, you know, killing yeah. me. And you got to let go of that. And and in many cases, the data was was A, forcing me to do a session harder than I needed or yeah. wanted. And B, then disengages me because, you know, the older a man gets, the faster he could run as a boy is a, is a good phrase yeah. that I use for my sporting career. That Every year I haven't played football, I was a better footballer. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. You know, I went from being a sort of a substitute in a team so low in the lower leagues to being a sort of semi-pro by the time I'm explaining it to my son. So, you know, the, the challenge is 
the data there can be misleading. You know, Peloton itself, beautiful, but but what's the purpose now of that data? And, and mm. to me, it's better to turn it off because it's it stopped me riding for pleasure. It stopped me riding for mood stability. And by by determining that because my last score was X, I've got to now be X plus one, it's actually potentially leading me down the wrong path. Yeah. Now that, that's not the bike's fault, of course, and data is great, but, but this is where context to data matters. You know, again, data is trying to help you answer a question, which that question might be, am I improving? But when the data becomes the master and, and lord of, of why you're doing the session, yeah. then, then it's gone too far. And again, I, I see a role in the fitness profession as a curator of these different data. They'll, they'll get cleverer and cleverer. You know, we've got, I, I use continuous glucose monitors that would track your glucose real time. And, and they're brilliant for people with, with um, both type 2 and type 1 diabetes to see what is the level of your sugar, you know, over two week periods. Whereas you used to have to prick your finger. Yeah. Now you've got a sticker with a, a sort of a, a tiny hair that goes in the interstitial fluids and measures your glucose to your phone. So, you, you know, and that that was originally positioned into the diabetic marketplace. Now it's been put into the superhuman as, as consumer brands saying everyone's blood glucose control needs to be the new, you know, the new parameter of choice. But, you know, you can have someone with a continuous glucose monitor. You can have, you know, their, their EEG feedback coming from a device they're wearing during sleep. They've got heart rate variability. My, my brother-in-law got a watch, I can't remember which one it was, that does a body composition via bioelectrical impedance. You know, so he puts two fingers on it, which I don't think who, who manufactures it. But, you know, in amongst doing, you know, his oxygen saturation, an ECG, albeit a, a pretty inaccurate one, um, it's able to now do his body fat. So you've got data capability far exceeding the practitioner's ability to understand yeah. it. Yeah. So you could have someone turning up at your gym with effectively a mini physiological lab on their wrist, but no structured way in which how that should be used, what, yeah. what's to be done. Yeah, with they it. need to know how to use it. And I guess it's it's definitely not for some people. The only reason I got a Garmin is because I'm doing hundred K. And is I'm in like itself, you know, fucking it unbelievable. Is. So that's Amazing. the only reason I got this. I'm like, measure heart rate, see what am I recovering? Yes, perfect. So very I think it's always personal to the individual. That's which a perfect is just example. Yeah. it's an important takeaway. I think it depends it? like when you use it in your journey as well, because some people use it as like an education tool and it's like, okay, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I know, for example, what's in that food now because I've counted calories for so long. I can leave that yeah, crutch alone. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I don't need to check my bank account every day to know what's in there. But then you get other individuals who would just not use data at all. Courtney do a good example. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Don't. She's one of the best ultra marathon runners. runners in the world. Yeah. Um, and she literally tracks nothing. She like eats beers, tacos. Yep. She will go like she was on. I think she's on the Rogan podcast. And I think she was on Nick Bear's podcast oh, wow. talking about. Um, they were asking the questions about like how long do you go for a run for like what's your run schedule for the week like do you have interval days long days short days high heart rate zones she was like what yeah, yeah. She, and she's like I'll yeah. just go for a run and I don't know whether I'm saying to my husband I'll be back for tail I'll be back tomorrow yeah and, brilliant and, and like I won't track yeah. if I do intervals it'll be because I find a nice hill that I like I run up and down do the hills yeah. and she just goes on to talk about like she knows how her brain functions and that she has a real joy for running. That's why she pushes herself more because she enjoys it so much. And having that data would pull away from that enjoyment. So it would negatively affect her performance. And that's where it's important to know, I think yourself, and that comes from experience of exercise and Mm. and being in fitness as well, to to know how you will respond to certain things and when things are good or bad for you as well. Totally. And, and, you know, it's it's exactly that. What she doesn't need to ask a question, right? She's she's reaching the top of her game without, so if, you know, I was asking a question, why am I overtraining on the volume that doesn't seem sufficient to overtrain? You're asking a very particular question, which is, I'm doing a hell of an increase in training volume of this particular modality. When do I need to build in more rest? 
I might ask a question, which is why why can't I lose weight when I don't think I'm overeating calories and, and do a MyFitnessPal to work out, oh, I'm eating more energy-dense food than I was expecting. Yeah. It's start with the question, don't, don't start with the tech. That's um, a real, that's a, that's a, that's a, a t-shirt for you there. I'm in need of some serious. I'll have to set a shop fire. Yeah. <laughs> 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 There's some really yeah. good nugget quotes yeah. there. And so that, that again, we, we can't override feel. You know, feel is crucial, you know, and, and I'm seeing some good campaigns about that, which I like. But feel is don't don't let the device tell you how you're feeling. It's mm. got to be data plus person. You know, if I get a whole every bit of biological data imaginable and sit with someone, I still want to hear their story. I might say this looks like someone who presents as tired, but they might not be tired, in which case don't tell them they should feel yeah. tired. And, and often people are living the symptoms of what they've been told they should be feeling. And, and and disconnected you know we, yeah. we have people who sort of fundamentally don't connect with how they feel you know they, they've blasted any biological feedback mechanism with caffeine you know anti-inflammatory painkillers a mood you know a mood stabilizer and they, they, they're sort of disconnected from what those signals are telling them and now this watch is saying you're 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 not doing enough and it's like oh another thing to load into my life yeah. so I, I think that again there's a great value to data. I think there'll be ultimately more amalgam bits of kit. So mm. a single piece of kit that, that measures across these different spectrums. But for me, the one thing I can't really tell that affects my day-to-day -day is heart rate variability. So that's why yeah. I like Whoop and Aura above the others as a, as a general piece of advice. Yeah, 100%. I think the, the, there's a couple of other topics that I want to touch on, which have been more recent. I had them in my show notes. Um, have you seen the stuff when we're talking about weight loss? Have you seen the new weight loss job that's been talked about recently i had i saw something on it briefly but i'm not a technical expert yeah I'm, I'm, very not, happy. I'm not deep into it i've seen a, a couple of people colleagues comment on it yeah i know it's been labeled as the weight loss jab and i think people get the assumption that you take it and it like melts fat yes which is, it's more to do with appetite i believe in regards to suppressing appetite than yes. lead interesting weight loss yeah. so i think people give it gave it a bit of a negative backlash at first until they really understood what it did yeah and i'm i'm to some degree on board with that if it's an intervention that works long term yeah because i think we spoke about with james on the podcast about the society that we live in our high palatable foods yeah. the way that things are marketed like america on a daily basis are making twice the amount of food that they need to make to feed the population Amazing. it's it's just nuts to it like even like when we i was younger i would have to walk to the chippy yeah. walk the bag back like finger fuck it to get into the chips <laughs> yeah and then yeah and then eat it whereas yeah. now you can store it under the road totally. it's there straight away everything so e even those small changes to for me expending a certain amount of calories to walk to the chippy and yeah. and walk back of have changed yeah. so there's no surprise that potentially there's interventions like this coming out when you're battling a massive marketing monster yeah. that is pushing calories down people's throat from every single place that you look totally I, it's a challenge I, I don't know the exact mechanism but if it if it's driving increased satiety so you know we've got this sort of interplay between these hormones ghrelin and leptin which yeah. sort of you know, which determines and you know anyone who struggled with weight long term you know it's, it's very viable you know there, there is an obesity gene i think it's called the gto gene and and that has its roots in a, in a slightly dysfunctional set point in fact, I always remember reading a journal of obesity years ago that said, if you overate by 100 calories a day, you know, you gain six or seven kilograms a year. That's 100 calories a day. You know, that's 
that's a slice of bread. That's you know yeah. half a third of a Mars bar back back then before they shrunk it down. Um, much to my disgust, you know. But you know, it was it's so marginal. But but that, it was a consistent error over time. Yeah. You know, and, that, and we come back to all things consistency, right? If I get it slightly wrong over time, it, it's a problem. Yeah. And over two three years, of course, that that could be catastrophic. So if my set point of when I feel full is slightly off, then that is going to make it tougher for me yeah. compared to someone who doesn't have that. So I think there's 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 a great challenge in in when does the human know it's full we know that to manage satiety that feeling of being full then having a little bit more protein in our diet and most people are slightly insufficient on protein and a bit more fibrous vegetables so going a bit more plant-based are two really good ways to increase the satiety in relatively low calorie density so you know in amongst but that's that's we're into a bigger topic there immediately because then you're into the, the sort of social inequalities of food because yeah. protein and vegetables are going to be higher priced or, or yeah. require more health literacy to get involved in. So anything to do with weight and obesity is, is a minefield and, and I'm wary of. I think there's an interesting point here which says at current rates, you know, obesity and, and the, the, one of the major consequences of obesity being diabetes and the, the collective phrase diabetes is probably going to be the major strain on the NHS in the coming 15, 20 years. <clears throat> Mainly because diabetes is a disease that, that manifests into amputations and blindness because high blood sugar is, is highly toxic to, to tissues that have, have got big capillary beds, so the eyes and, and, and hands and feet. So the cost, the secondary cost of diabetes is so significant that if you look at it purely, you've got to do something. You've got to do something. And, and to change food lobbying, change food processing, to change regulation around that is, is, is not going to happen mm -hmm. in a period of time that's going to inflect positively on, on that catastrophic cost. So if there is a if there is a jab that would help people who can't regulate their appetite to regulate it better, thereby decrease their total calories, thereby affect their weight, I'm I'm so for it. Yeah. You know, because if it works, it works. And, and and again, the challenge is that doesn't necessarily enhance their underlying physiology, but you can be too pure on these things and say, look, if if they are overeating hyperpalatable processed food because they're hungry all the time and those foods give no feedback that you've eaten them. Yeah. So I can eat processed food and I don't get that mechanism that says to my brain, you've had enough in the same way if I eat 100 grams of broccoli and 100 grams of, of donuts, you know, I'm going to have a very different yeah. appetite to eat more after the broccoli than I will after the, after the donuts. I think that's so important as well. It feels like it's for a very particular market. It's not just for Sarah down the road who wants to lose four pounds. Yeah. That's that's not what it should be. And I, I, I mean, I've not read that much in it, so I can't comment either on how it actually works. But it does seem like it would be for a very specific group of people who it could actually help, not just... And I hope it's not been marketed to Sarah down the road who yeah. needs to lose four pounds. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm yeah. not sure how it has been publicized. It's called... I'm probably absolutely mad at this name. Um, semaglutide. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I follow a doctor in America who uses it with, with his patients to great effect and he, he's very much a lifestyle medicine doctor um and and he's been using that effectively for a period of time and i've seen him talk about it it, it to me again it can work now what we've got to bear in mind is there is a benefit to nutrition above and beyond the calories it provides me so what you've got to be careful on is say oh now my weight's under control i don't need to exercise mm -hmm. and now my weight's under control i don't need to eat you know diverse nutrients because we've we've reduced nutrition to a calorie debate so I, again if someone is, is prone to overeating if they overeat you know nourishing foods they're still going to gain weight yeah. you know we, we, we've got to go back 
And I know in nutritional science, there's a battle between SECO and the insulin carbohydrate model of obesity, which, which has created a confusion, right? So the traditional medical science is that it's pure play calories in, calories out, and variables that affect that will affect weight. And there's a new wave of, of doctors and cardiologists and endocrinologists who are on shaky evidence ground saying, we're not necessarily overeating calories, we're eating too much refined carbohydrate, which by turn is creating too much insulin, which in turn is causing excessive body fat storage. Mm -hmm. That has not been proved in, in, in quality literature. So we go, go, go back to SECO and say, it's gonna change calories in, calories out, that's great. But I eat for a multitude of reasons. I eat certain foods because my body doesn't make the things that I need mm -hmm. naturally. I don't make vitamin C, I don't make sufficient vitamin D, I don't make you know these crucial group of amino acids. So if I don't eat them, the biological role that they fulfill doesn't get done. Mm -hmm. Now that, that'll be scurvy if I don't eat vitamin C and that'll be vitamin D deficiency. It'll be rickets, my bones don't form properly. Mm -hmm. um, my immune system, my mood stability. And again, we've got nutrition as, as sort of sitting in this axis that I eat to control my calories. And if my weight's okay, then I'm well nourished. And I'll get someone saying to me, because I'm not, I'm a normal BMI that, oh, you know, you must eat well. Not at all. I, I, you could say you must not overeat. Yeah. Doesn't mean I eat well. Yeah. Doesn't mean I'm nourished. So the challenge again is saying, how do we in increase the incentive to people to eat a more nourishing diet? And the whole food movement got sort of pillared, but you know, really that's diversity of nutrients that we need. That's predominantly plant-based, not, not, not vegan, but plant-based. So we know, again, if I, if I think of all the gut testing I've done over the last you know, 15 years in particular, where we're measuring the delightful substance that is poo and saying, what is in there? And what's that telling me about your colon? You know, we, we're looking for, one of the key elements of that is this concept of microbiome, which is the, the bacterial balance. And we have trillions of bacteria. Some studies say we have an equal number of bacteria to cells in the body. So the number of human cells I have is equal to the number of bacterial cells. Some say there's 10 times as much bacteria as, as cells. So we are quite significantly bacteria. That's several pounds of bacteria, most of which sits in my large intestine in my colon. That needs to feed on, on fibers that can reach that part of my diet. And different fibers feed different families of bacteria that provide different jobs to my body. So why, why the microbiome is important is as that fiber um, is eaten by that bacteria, they produce elements that support my immune system, control the inflammation unwanted in some cases in my body. So the bacteria plays a critical role in regulating my, my entire environment. Mm -hmm. If I don't have any food diversity, if I don't have any fibers that reach that large intestine, then that bacterial picture cannot be as complete as it could be. If I've had a history of using antibiotics at an early, you know, chesty cough that was probably more virus than bacteria, if I've, if I've had a history of lots of antibiotics, a low fiber diet, and I've, again, possibly haven't moved much, then that gut picture is, is gonna be a problem. Yeah. And, and we're seeing, again, potentially an immune crisis. So here's this fascinating thing where, COVID came and there was this opportunity for the government to say, look, you know, we're working on a vaccine, right? But the best thing we can do is increase the quality of your underlying physiology. We knew early on that there was a correlation with body fatness, which was a problem. So that, that becomes a reason to get your weight in shape because that will affect mortality rates at, at significant body fatness. There was correlation with vitamin D levels. So why not support you know, wholesale vitamin D usage? You know, it's very unlikely to go to toxicity levels on, on mass levels controversial but but there we go but you know again there was nothing about gut health vitamin d movement levels stress levels mm -hmm. where where here was the first chance to say there is a pandemic that that will draw a huge amount of your energy 
And if your energy could be enhanced, that might increase your chances of getting over it quicker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, if anyone's lost someone to, to COVID, that does not mean they didn't lead a good lifestyle. Yeah. It, it really doesn't. Yeah. But as a line of best fit, you're saying there are some things that statistically would have would have increased the population's chance of dealing with it better that just got completely lost by the side. And it was, again, may the vaccine save us. Yeah. And and once again, it's the NHS's job to make me healthy, which is a remit it cannot fulfill. It's it's its job to stop me being unwell. Yeah but it's not its job to make me healthy. Um, I can't remember what the original question was. Fat jab. Yeah. You know, so you know, within that, I think, A, a if something intervenes that, that, that reduces obesity, then society-wise, we're all for it. But we've got to say that that doesn't then excuse the, or, or diminish the role of movement yeah. to control the benefits of exercise, nutrition to control the benefits of nourishment. And if those people are losing weight, then they're probably more incentivized to pick up other affiliate behaviors, I would hope. I think what you raised there was was interesting because I looked down in my notes as well as the conversation about, and this goes two ways, being fat or fit, which we, we kind of mentioned a little bit earlier on because yeah. there's a, a lot of debate around that. But the, the opposing sides that and a scenario that I've been in is that probably about four years ago, I get... Um, my blood's done every couple of months just to see where I'm up to and see where everyone's ticking along. Yep. But I, I was about three, three or four years ago when I'd eaten disorder. Yeah. And yep. to people who I would have posted online to and seen an image of me with my kit off with like he's in peak physical condition. Yep. But I had a, um, a load of blood work, another test that came back and I was close pre, to having pre-diabetic yeah. because my diet was i was uh, it was i suppose you describe it like a bit of a bro diet at the time as well yeah i have a, a whey protein shaking a bag of skittles after training yeah. hot torch just to get some some sugar and carbs in yeah. cereal in the morning it didn't really give a shit it was just kind of like if it fits your macros style of yeah. style of dieting yeah. it was based on the outcome of what i look like from a body composition point of view but really then internally point. it wasn't wasn't particularly healthy i didn't know that until i had those markers done. So that's the opposing side of things where people look at me and be he's like peak condition, but in, I, I actually wasn't. It's a great example. And and that's just, that goes the same with bodybuilding as, as well. Yeah, um, on stage bodybuilding. But I think again, sometimes people miss the point of that. And we've had this debate before about the bodybuilders. It's it's usually like the day that they show up on stage, they're in the worst physical condition, but look yes. the best. And yeah. some people come away from that in different ways and can manage that very well, but that's, the whole different debate. Fascinating. Um, it is fascinating. Yeah, and but, then we get this other side about the fat but fit debate, and this is interesting because there was a, I think there was a, a publication on a magazine. I think it was called Self, which quite a few people have been speaking about recently. It came out the other month with, I think she was a yoga instructor. Yeah, um, see if I can. See if you can find it. I think she was a yoga instructor, and it it featured a, a woman. Who was? What was it called again? Sorry. I think it was called Self. Self magazine. Um, yeah, it, fe- it featured a, a woman who was large, and put this is the future of fitness, and there was a massive like backlash from it. Ah, uh-huh. fascinating. Yes. So yeah, we'll get Cal to pop it on the screen as well. Yeah, guys. we'll get Cal to pop, pop this up. Yeah. There's a lot of debate around this because I, I think the, the issue I had with it was the reference to this is the future of fitness. Yeah. I think if they put something different, like fin- fitness at all sizes or, yeah. or something a little bit different, but obviously the magazine's being very clever in the way that the market stuff and they push it out yeah, to cause this debate. Huge sell, sell more. Yeah, we're talking more about articles, it. <laughs> we're talking about now on the podcast. Yeah. So I think that's difficult because I think she's a very famous yoga instructor. Yeah, she's fantastic. Very mobile, yeah. very fit. And again, there's those outliers and stuff. Yeah. What is your 
thoughts on the fat but fit debate. Um, I'm sure it's very multifaceted, but what? You want me to get cancelled then? <laughs> Basically. <yeah. laughs> I, you know, I think if you take it on an individual on that, basis. Though, I, think it's, I think it's important that we talk about it because totally. there's so much political correctness to the point where I think people don't even discuss it anymore and yeah. scared to talk about it. Totally. And so, so we look at what, what is the risk of that excessive body fat? So, you know, on an individual basis, again, if you have a high level of fitness, what does that mean? So I, I would always break fitness into three biological systems of benefit, you know, in terms of my ability to deliver oxygen to my tissues, my cardiovascular aerobic system, which is different to my ability to generate force and the volume of muscle I've got to support that, which is different to my body's ability to move pain-free, coordinated, et cetera. There's other types of fitness. People might have done speed, stamina, strength, et cetera. But really, when we look at biology, there's three very different biological systems that, that contribute to fitness. And when we talk about health, we have to bear in mind that taking any one of those systems to its absolute extreme will probably come at some compensatory yeah. mechanism to the other two. So the idea that performance is, is healthy is there to be challenged. And in many levels, you know, taking bodybuilding as, as a performance aspect, it's a good example. You know, what is the, what is the, you know, the, the cardiovascular capacity? What is the, I suppose, in many cases, what is the recovery capacity? What is the organ strain? If you've taken that system to 120% of its ideal capacity, then there's probably some kind of negative compensation elsewhere. So if you take that individual and say, look, if my job is like the old Chinese doctors, you know, to make sure that, that she lives for as long as possible, I'd want to be seeing whether the, the, the body tissues are negatively infecting, mm -hmm. you know, inflecting on health. That, that would be relevant. So is there enough cardiovascular capacity? You can quantify that through basic metrics like VO2 max would be a way of me determining whether you have a good aerobic capacity. Um, that correlates to health. So if you've got a VO2 max of less than 32 milliliters per kilogram, um, per minute, which is how much oxygen you can deliver to each tissue, you have an increased cardiovascular disease risk. So there's a fitness marker at which there's a, there's a met, the, the, we talked about prehabilitation earlier. We know that from a surgical risk perspective, that if your fitness is too low, your risk of unfortunately dying on the operating table is higher. So yeah. there was a really strong argument for, for testing cardiovascularly people preoperatively and determining if the operation is sensible or not. And there's a marker that's either VO2 max or another marker, which is called lactate threshold, the point of when you go from being aerobically efficient to aerobically inefficient. And, and I think it was an, uh, an anaerobic threshold, which is determined in lots of different ways by lots of different people of below 11 or 10 meant that you really shouldn't operate. So is that, is that a, a metric system that they use to whether you will be operated <clears throat> on? So when I, when, when I work with a hospital group, that, that's a question mark that theoretically, yes, but what, what you've got then is your 75 year old being asked to wear a sort of ergo spirometry mask and cycle on a bike while they're waiting for their heart operation. So the risk versus the reward is difficult. So the yeah. data makes logical sense. The application of, of generating that data is probably too, too risky. So prehabilitation, we know again, if, if I build your quad muscle, you'll get a better return after your knee operation. But there's always the question of who incentivizes the, yeah. the patient to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, your, your knee operation should start with a six-week membership to the gym. Then you have the operation and a 12-week membership afterwards. Yeah. You know, that, that's the way it should be. Should be the same for your heart. Should be the same for your, for your cancer. And again, when we look at the future of, the, the future of fitness, I'd much rather see it as that, um, that we're actually embracing where underlying physiology has a mechanism in, in, in the global health system. Mm -hmm. But I digress. Um, so, because you wanted to string me out on this question. <laughs> so, you know, so you'd say, look, okay, is there enough aerobic capacity that, that that risk is mitigated? Is there sufficient lean tissue? You can be, you know, if you if you weigh X amount, you might actually have a lot of muscle tissue, which, which works extremely well, and she will move extremely well. So she might well be extremely fit, that individual, and therefore not have the risk of being unfit. 
That's really mm. important. So what does excessive body fat do? Dr. Mike. Um, it can create increased inflammatory reactions in the body. It's a pro-inflammatory condition. When we think of inflammation, it's a bit like an immune reaction that is really useful in situations where I want to, you know, if I get punched in the face, hopefully not today, then I'll have an inflammatory reaction to, to repair that as part of my body's immune response. Um, inflammation is a hugely positive thing, but in certain conditions, we see heightened levels of inflammation. Cancer's borderline, but definitely cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's. These are classified as inflammatory conditions and excess body fat correlates with increased inflammation. I say correlates because no one's proved that the inflammation causes the problem rather than correlates with. So I don't want to fall on my own sword yeah. from earlier. So what is the fat doing? Well, that fat could create, could create increased pressure on the blood vessels, which would increase blood pressure. Measure her blood pressure if it's fine. That's not a problem. Yeah. That body fat could be increasing inflammation. Take blood markers of inflammation. Could be yeah. a C-reactive protein. Could be others, ESR check whether there's excessive inflammation. You could look in the gut and see whether that's inflamed. You could look at the management of blood glucose because that seems to be the first thing that is affected by excessive body fat. What is the level of what's called HbA1c, which says, yeah. am I covering too many of my cells in glucose over a, you know, over a period of time, you know, six or, or, or 12 weeks, I can't quite recall. And you could say, look, this body may be compensating for the excessive body fat. So in that individual basis, you are a statistical outlier. So what, what you can't do is say you are, unhealthy or you cannot handle that volume of body fat but what we know is those things are triggered by too much body fat so if you're setting an example that says you you too can be fit like me then that individual runs the risk of not being yeah. as fit as you so you know the, the reality is statistically having too much body competition too much body adiposity in other words having too much body fat as an absolute level will increase the risk of certain health issues yeah Increased risk does not mean guaranteed absolute. Yeah, yeah. So you're in a statistical position where I can't say she is unhealthy at that body fatness. Um, I could say there's an increased likelihood that she would be. And if you're presenting, someone is saying, okay, you too can be have excessive body fat. I would take a, a view of saying, if I am going to have that, then I've just got to make sure I'm 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 not yeah. degenerating my physiology. Now, she might be at a level where her physiology is flourishing under that weight. And, and again, lots of the data we've got is, is misrepresented. It's all been the similar populations. Certain, you know, worldwide populations might cope better with body fat ranges. You know, the, the data on what percentage body fat equals poor health is pretty old school. Yeah. You know, theoretically, a male of my age would want to be 21% and below. A female my age would be, you know, 32, 31% and below. Um, but if you're much above that, you know, at what point does it really become pro-inflammatory and yeah. where does fitness fit in? So my gut feel would be is we, you can never go at an individual because you can't say that individual is, yeah, is yeah. not flourishing under that under that body fatness. But statistically, because body fat is a difficult tissue to have in excess, you run the risk of telling people that they're absolutely fine. And that first person who develops diabetes and, and has a stroke turns around and goes, hang on a minute, how did this happen? I thought, well, because unfortunately there was a tissue that that was a really difficult thing for your physiology to sustain at that level. So body fat, equally, we can go the other way at too low a level, it has consequences also. Yeah. But I think, you know, the positive of that narrative is fitness and the robustness of your underlying physiology is far more than your body weight and your body yeah. fat percentage. Yeah. So, you know, you can be extremely well functioning and not look fit on the front cover of a magazine. Yeah. I, I suppose then there's the, should the question be more, can you be um, fat but healthy and not? fat but fit because you can just because you hold more muscle tissue yeah. as well as being having a, 
a shit ton of adipose tissue doesn't counterbalance yeah. the other. Because I know when I put a load of body fat on, I feel more physically unfit when I go and do like normal exercise, like walk up the yeah. stairs and stuff like that. And I suppose people like to pigeonhole and, and for, for question to be black and white when obviously there's, there's this gray area yeah. within stuff as well, which is sometimes difficult to answer. It's it's a brute, you know, and you've absolutely stitched me up. But you know, but it's a great question. But yeah, I think again, it, it's it's reframing what does it mean to be well, and also yeah. what does it mean to be fit. So fitness is a terrible word anyway, because fitness is task specific. Am I fit? Fit for, for what? what? Yep. So fit, you know, am I fit compared to you two? No. Am I fit compared to you know version me in five years' time? I hope so. Am I yeah. fit enough to run a five k? Yes. Am I fit enough to run a half marathon? No. So fitness is task specific. So. This word doesn't mean anything and therefore it's confused. The future of fitness, again, it's 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 not about fitness. It's, is she well? And and in amongst all of this, I've got all that great biological, physiological data and I'm going there. You would start with, do you feel well? I'll go back to that subjective question. How's your energy out of 10? If it's 10 out of 10 and her biological markers are great, then you've got no reason to tell her to change anything or to, or to, or to work with her to change it. You shouldn't tell her to change anything anyway. If she feels six out of 10, then you can say a factor contributing to that might be the body fat. Would you be interested in trimming the body fat to see whether that moves your energy up a dial? But you know, again, if an individual is feeling great, is aesthetically happy with where they are, and biologically they're in harmony, there's no, you know, then, then I'm perfectly happy. But that requires a personalized approach. If I take a, a population approach and say, will I get away with you know, less shared health costs with a growing obesity population the answer to that is unfortunately not i suppose the important question as well is like where where would you be at, at maintaining that level of body fat tissue in another 10 years time within what will be the implication of it yeah like does that get worse as she get as she gets older as she as she as she stays with that <clears throat> amount of adipose tissue for a further 10 years yeah. do the re the risks heighten further they, they will because it's a it's a challenge to physiology so the longer the challenge remains the, the greater the obstacle yeah. you know but again you may get away you know the, you'll see people who live long fantastic lives with with too much yeah. body fat compared to the statistical norm so what you can't do is threaten her with a dystopian future version of herself you yeah. Just have to, oh yeah, uh, yeah. And, and again and that's the challenge she will have increased risk of diabetes yes statistically but she may not as an individual have those things so i think the, the word fit is the wrong word. Yeah. You know, can this individual be well? They can be entirely well. Should we be promoting that as an industry, as a as a as an aspirational figure? It's challenging because again, the body confidence. She is beautiful, right? Yeah. I've got you know, I, I I don't have a type, but I don't see anything yeah. you know wrong with someone carrying excessive body fat. Other than it's an additional load on their physiology that they may want to consider yeah. reducing. In yeah. the same way as if someone doesn't sleep very well because they overcaffeinate it's a similar thing. It's just not as visible. Mm -hmm. I think it's just important because what you did there really, really well, like you couldn't have explained it better, to be honest. Mm -hmm. You disassociate the biology, the stats, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. And then this is the message. Yeah. Like that, that you look at them set, they're two different things. They're two different things. Do you know what I mean? That's not, it's yeah. not the same I, I conversation. Think... It's okay. This is the biology. This is the stats. These are the facts. Yeah. And then this is what is happening. Yes. So it's, I think it's important it to recognize hard. that, but then I think it's important to recognize that that magazine i think i've just like sold it down the street a bit because i think the messaging could have been different yeah. because it, the other thing that's also hard and i've seen images like this before i saw someone put a poll up of this guy who was really overweight yeah. and put like what were your thoughts on this and people putting lazy fat mm. uh, all, all these negative 
Thames. Yep. And then they put another photo on. And he was, I think he was eight weeks into his fat loss journey. So he'd gone from 300 pounds to yes. like 270. So he's still really overweight, yep. but they hadn't seen the process that totally. he was currently going through. Totally. So that then changes people's perspective on stuff. Enormously. And the, the female who was on the front of that, she's a yoga instructor. She's really influential. She's really positive and has potentially opened doors for other people who are that weight to then think, oh, I can be involved in fitness as well. Totally. It doesn't exclude me. So there's there's those sides of things to which I think, again, the magazines are stitched up and could have used something a lot more relevant yeah. to bring people into fitness rather than provoking arguments. And it does it because it wants us talking yes, about it. But, you course, know, yeah. and, and, and it's, with the stitches are up, you know, it needs, there needs to be representation of different, different body types. Again, because if we want normal people to come into the gym, they want to see people who look like them. Yeah. Right? I remember I went to Equinox gym in London and, you know, and, and the All Blacks were training in there at the time. So All Blacks were in there and everyone in there was basically unbelievable. And I thought, I don't fit in here, you know, and I, I've known my way around a gym since I was, since I was 16, believe it or not. Mm. Uh, you know, but fundamentally, you know, you want to see people who look a bit like you yes. in environments, both from a staffing and from a, from a, from an accessibility point of view. So I think, you know, I remember when I when I was recruiting into a gym in, in the Nuffield portfolio, we were putting in a sort of head of wellness per club who would be a bit like your your portal for new products and services and, and a really great role. And someone walked in who was who was, you know, significantly overweight from a body mass index point of view, and I could assume from a body fatness point of view as well. Um and you got again this interesting and, and he was on a weight loss journey, he'd lost fifty kilograms and was but he, he was so able to empathize with the journey of the non-gym user and he was so clear in his own experience not that he would use it in every sentence that drives me mad when it's this is what i did so you must do what i do too mm. uh, he was able to distance his journey from a real layer of empathy that he could communicate with people we didn't think had been communicated with before so his his body shape didn't matter at all in terms of negatively affecting his job in fact i felt it, it increased his likelihood of of being a really successful well-being advisor within that club but again, he's got to manage his own personal risk. And, and, and the challenge is, you know, is anyone a good example? You know, because we all have this unique genetic background. So I can't really say that that singular behavior will be positive or negative on anyone. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult. You know, we can overtrain. You know, we advocate good exercise, you overtrain easily. You can advocate, you know, a, a particular volume of a certain micronutrient and then it becomes toxic at a yeah. level. If I eat 200 bananas a day, I'll, I'll have dodgy tummy. Yeah. Now, is a, a single banana good for you? You know, no problem at all. So. We, we really face this challenge where we're trying to trying to choose either a behavior that is universally good or bad is difficult, but also what we call a somatotype that I look at a body composition and determine that that is good or bad based on how it appears. It, it's it's more complicated than that. You know, I, I I would say again, what we remove is let's not talk so much about what body shape people have got. Let's not talk about individual behaviors. Let's say, do you feel like you want to feel? And if you don't, are there positive and negative behaviors in movement, positive negative behaviors in nutrition, positive negative behaviors in, in stress and recovery, positive negative in environment, which might be light and dark, might be toxicity and positive in mindset. Yeah. And if you want to change it, which one of those do you think you, you, want, you want to most influence? And that's where, again, I think a, a practitioner who can sit with you and go, look, if you don't feel the way you want to feel, I've got this amazing toolkit of things. Yeah. Right? I've got an amazing toolkit of things. I'll find something that will make you feel better. <laughs> yeah. And I'll find something you're doing that might, if we take it away, make you feel better also. But I'm not going to start with that thing. I'm going to get there when you've told me what it is yeah. you want to achieve. And so it, it's everything the fitness wants to do is, you know, is be evocative and provocative and all these other bits. I think it's very likely that she's extremely fit well and a perfect ambassador for fitness. 
but but it's a difficult message to replicate on mass yeah. with confidence. I think this is interesting because it kind of like takes us back to where we started the podcast and where where we're ending it is how important the messaging is. And this why again I think it's important that there are different sides and and different people within the the fitness field, such yeah. as body positivity, and yeah. then people who are really extreme into fitness because their entry into things and what they will be motivated by is very very different someone and again i would imagine the people who were criticizing that cover were the people who were very much into the gym into the extreme stuff like how is this motivating it might only be motivating to you yes but it's motivating to someone else who's coming into the gym and again people are motivated by different things of why they get into fitness and i don't think there's anything wrong by being motivated by wanting to just lose weight because that may lead into different things and again it's that giving people a little bit of what they want with what they need because a lot of the reasons why some of the guys i may work with at first is because they go on a lads holiday they want to get laid more yeah, yeah. they want to be able to, to drink on the weekend and do what do whatever they want and then live life through the week of, of work and whatever yeah. but then it's being molded into something with a bit more something tangible yeah. there as well so it's, it's it's an interesting debate and i think the thing that i was going to end on is what do you think um, a, it is missing kind of within the fitness space in the way that we are educating other PTs who then work with mm. the the end client, so to speak. Good, good question. I, I think I think there needs to be more empathy for the non gym user. You know, people need to spend time with people who don't like exercise. It's really important because they genuinely don't like it. It's not that you haven't done it right. You know, they, a lot of people genuinely don't like it and they need to be incentivized in a language and a, and, a, and a mechanism that they relate to. So I think that element, and again, everyone will go, oh, I don't do that. But we know it doesn't work effectively because most people don't go to the gym. So if we got that right, we'd see a much broader penetration of gym usage because there are certain things in the gym that you just can't replicate in a sedentary life outside of it. So if you've understood what the benefit of movement is really, you'd probably find yourself accessing a gym a bit like I do once a week to stop sarcopenia. That's pretty much my my gym usage mm-hmm. because of the biggest factor of my next 20, 30 years will be, can I keep, you know, what if I'm 85, 82, 83 kilograms at the moment and I'm 18% body fat, can I keep that 50 kilograms of lean tissue? That that will really determine the next period of my life. So I think empathy and, and communication in that sphere. I've, I've always felt the biggest missing piece of fitness is understanding is, is recovery. I think most people think recovery is is reduced inflammation, reduced DOMS rather than reduced physiological um, or improved physiological recovery. So I would bracket recovery into activities that drive that parasympathetic nervous Mm -hmm. system, both in the day during the night, activities that drive deep sleep, activities that drive reduced inflammation and activities that um, reduce sympathetic drive and cortisol. So, you know, those would be the things that I'm interested in, actions and behaviors that drive that. And again, not not egging it, but I wrote a course to train fitness professionals in the skill I felt they had least, that had the biggest impact on human physiology. So if I'm talking to someone about load, I have to understand that load equals damage and damage needs recovery. I, if I'm talking to someone about digestion, I have to understand parasympathetic tone and the role on, on digestive capability. So for me, what will make the broader coach, before we get into mindset, and I'm a big believer in in, in a method called psychological fitness, which which is from a, a chartered psychologist friend of mine, Vanessa Moulton, that says, again, we, we're spending an awful lot of time on the resource of, of picking up early signs of poor mental health rather than creating a framework for optimal mental health. What are the, she's created a, a sort of 10 actions that, that support positive mental health and, and can we get everyone to embed those into their lifestyle rather than 
train mental health first aiders to find someone who's developing a chronic depression. More yeah. the role than more, but same, my, same my approach to, 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 fitness. To, to fitness and health is like, yeah. I, I'm not, you know, medicine's great at bringing dysfunctional back to non-dysfunctional. Whose job is it to take normal people and move them up towards optimal? Not optimal in terms of performance, but just moving that energy dial from a six to an eight that I wake up not needing a double espresso. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, the fitness industry just needs to, again, calm itself down in both the messaging and in as a as a generality let's be clear there's still space for crossfit there's still space for the for the for the elite end of it because people love it right it's it's, you know it's the livelihood it's it's a it's a group that loves its genre you know and i have dipped in and out of that over my time and and it's an embedding community it's a glorious place to be so my perspective is always about the people who aren't already in the gym i think we've got to be careful you don't disenfranchise the yeah. existing group who yeah. want to get carved and get ripped and, and compete in, in fitness events and be elite in fitness as, a, as an entity. But the broader well-being piece, I think, requires empathy for the non-gym user and, and, yeah. a, and, a, and a broadening and softening of language and an understanding of recovery. And I think those two things uh, give people the opportunity to to bring in that 60, 70, 80, your yeah. parents or younger than that, I'm sure, um, you know, bring in people who who historically, actually your parents are in the gym, not a good <laughs> example, you know, but bring in you know, my parents and say, okay, yeah. they're the ones who should be in a facility that overloads muscle tissue, yeah. forget the word gym. And therefore we need the right practitioner who's able to absorb them. And that isn't going to be exactly the, the same person who loves tearing people to pieces and getting a 7% body fat outcome. But I think that there needs to be a growing population of people who want to help the average person. Yeah. Um, and that that's a big passion of mine. Yeah. I mean, that's where, where we love. I mean, I love that answer. Love yeah, that no, answer. I was going to say absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I feel like I've learned even myself so much today. Like, well, we're always learning and that's yeah. so important. Yeah. And I know everyone who's listening as well, because we do have a lot of personal trainers who listen. Yeah. Yeah, they will take so many little t-shirt nuggets away. I think they'll take a lot away from the maybe the way they communicate themselves or the way that they even sell themselves as well. And I think it's something that we think about often because what we do and whatever field of fitness it's in, like I've done men's physique, bodybuilding stuff, and now I do like running. I think we always take stuff to the extreme because that's just our our nature. But all all members (laughs) want those people. So it's, it's communicating that. And what we're trying to do is bring people in to do like their first, 5k from doing nothing yeah. and and that's the that's the type of people that we're working with but then people see us doing like the if you're doing 100k well, it's like yeah. it's a communication between like how that works and how you don't need to be gearing up to do your first 100k it's 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 that, that and that's why i think why running's beautiful is because the entry level to run is you're putting one foot in front of the other and it's totally it's it's such a great thing for people to be able to get into and just just do but the thing that I, I know I'm really good at is I'm very transparent. So when I did my first YouTube video for Project Ultra, I said categorically do not copy what I'm doing yes. because you are not a hybrid athlete yep. who is strength training this much, yep. five days a week and running four. He's running six. You're, you're not me. Yep. I'm doing this for a personal goal. So categorically do not copy me. Yes. But it probably took me through experience to build up to that to say like, it'll really piss me off if you do copy me yeah. because I'm not asking you to do this. No. I'm a, I'm a separate person who is super fit. I swam all my life. This is why I'm doing it. I'm doing it yeah. for charity. Don't copy me because I'm not advising you to do it. I'm generally not. Do as it's... I say, not as I do. Yes, T-shirt quote. Yeah. T-shirt quote. I, I would yeah. end it by saying, you know, I, you, you might ask me another killer question, but you know, you need aspirational figures, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's, 
aspirational figures have always worked, you know, sports people, mm -hmm. you know, elite athletes to get more people active. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being, being at the extreme end is aspirational. It motivates me. When I see you two going out doing something, I think, go on, I'll leave that trip. <laughs> get outside. Get, and, and, and you need, I, I don't want to mimic you, but I take inspiration yeah. from mm -hmm. seeing people who have, have embedded a love of movement into their life. And on the flip side, you're talking about all these things. I've never seen any better data than when we've taken someone who's sedentary to active. Yeah. Right? So in amongst the opportunity of what we're doing is, is the biggest single thing that you can do to human physiology. You know, if I take someone from sedentary, and again, they could be wheelchair bound to becoming a, a wheelchair athlete or someone who moves a little to moving more, you see improvements in blood work, hormones, yeah. gut, you know, mood stability, everything. So we, when we talk about movement is medicine, it's not medicine to bring you back from ill to well. It is the underlying way in which the body mm -hmm. works. And, and you are championing more people to do that more often. So um, that, that is all part of the same spectrum. And being aspirational is, is a key part of that. Absolutely. God, there's some t-shirt codes in this one. I know. <laughs> um, so where can people find yeah. more about yourself and your course? Yeah, bring, bring people into the Oliver Patrick Honeypot. Oh, the Honeypot. Well, so I, I am on futurepractice.org. Um, so Future Practice is an organization I set up with Harry Jameson, who's a, um, a wellness coach based out of London. And we used to work together in, in Harley Street with some complex clients. And he's a lovely, lovely chap. Um, he trains some high profile people, which is why he's, he's quite well known, but he's a, he's a really solid guy. And he represents the industry. So we said, look, you know, you, you know what you've been trained in. I know what I've learned. How do we amalgam that into, into courses? So Future Practice, we launched with a, 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 it's an eight and a half hour practical stress resilience course, which basically takes fitness people through how they add stress resilience coaching to their to their portfolio mm -hmm. but also enables them to do corporate well-being you know I I, I I go and do lunchtime talks at organizations and I'm really an upskilled fitness professional mm -hmm. to a degree so why not take the same path and and I was really interested during COVID so how do I increase the op, the earning opportunity of fitness professionals outside of being in the gym yeah mm -hmm. so online stress resilience consultations lunchtime talks to organizations strategy so the course gives you a PowerPoint presentation to deliver at courses uh, at organizations. It gives you a coaching crib sheet. When you do it, you're registered to run cortisol testing on your clients through Nordic Laboratories. That's cool. That's really cool. So I'm not doing CPD. I'm going to give people a bit of what I did at Nuffield, which is a, which is the opportunity for a diverse career. Um, so that's there. And I'm on Instagram with clinical underscore well-being, which is an embryonic account because I used to be on there as well-being dad, which is a bit cheesy, but that's me leading a, a healthy <laughs> lifestyle with my, my nine-year-old twins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 that's, and that's that's me. We'll leave, we'll leave the links in the, the YouTube description and the podcast description anyway, just so that's people right. can click straight in and find you. I, I've just actually started the Future Practice course Yay. this morning as well, so I'll be able to give you some some feedback on really that. Really good. You'll, you'll love it. You know, and again, it's it's... We sort of did it in a style that was, you know, it's about how does this make sense? You know, there's too much education that's for the for the ego of the person producing. Yeah. I don't really have an ego. You know, I, I'm of the position where I find it, I, I've been fortunate to learn an awful lot by working in, in environments that allowed me to adapt and change as I, as I grew with brilliant medical mentors and people who've looked after me all the way through. And I just think there's an awful lot of, of, of practical learning that can be easily distilled. So mm. what, what is most pleasing about the course is people are literally earning money. So someone did the course last week and they've earned 17.50 this week on selling corporate you know, wellbeing yeah. talks. It's not CPD. I mean, I remember going to my gym recently and there was like 20 different kettlebell qualifications under every PT. And it's yeah. like, well, the, their rack rate all seem the same. They're all at 55, 65 quid an hour. Yeah. 
you know, if you want to go and be a 200 pounds an hour or 700 pounds an hour lunchtime professional, then yeah. this course will, will move people there. So I'll be excited to see what you do with it. Yeah. And equally, it just, it creates a framework of, oh, I'll, I'll view that slightly differently. Or now I'm, I'll look at my whoop a little bit differently. Yeah. And I'll look at, at my Garmin recovery index a bit differently. So and that's important though, because one of the big things, and we get asked a lot of questions about personal training is that what you do with the course and, and following it and a lot of the stuff that as you develop as a fitness professional is what you do post doing the personal training course and what you read totally. and what education that you take in post that so i'm sure a lot of people benefit from that we'll leave it in the, the show notes thank you for everyone who's listened to this week's episode we are only back with this the second episode of series four so please continue to leave reviews on the youtube channel and apple podcasts and spotify, and spotify now yeah. spotify have introduced the ability to leave a review really? i think so That's unless exciting. i've made that up I don't know, you might have checked that for my yeah. dad. And then that might not be true. <laughs> on, on Instagram, tag myself, Lucy, and wellbeing dads are the best one. I think clinical, clinical. underscore wellbeing. Okay. So I'm trying to be my new professional yeah. okay. non-swearing self. <laughs> Great stuff. Thanks for everyone listening again. Bye, guys. Bye.